In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us of every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. With God's help, we are now up to talk number 42. I say with God's help because to do talks, to preach the word of God, is extremely difficult. Now, some of you might not understand that and think, well, what's so hard? You speak and that's it. As we learnt in talks 30 six or thirty, I can't remember now, around that, where I spoke a lot about the word of God. What did I say there from the fathers? That if you have two ways for people to come to the church, there are many ways, but let's just say one way is by witnessing miracles and the other way is by hearing the word of God. Both groups convert to Christianity or change their life if they're already orthodox. The fathers of the church say that those who converted from miracles actually become weak believers. They tend to fall away easily. While those who convert from the word of God, those who feel within their hearts the truth, the power from the word of God, those people in general, became, become stronger believers. A lot of people say, why aren't there miracles so that way people can convert and convert and convert? But yet, we know from the history of the church that those who did convert because they saw a miracle became enthusiastic. Even today, I know many people who might see a miracle, a miraculous icon, something that brings them and says, this is, this, is, this is amazing. And then they change and they start to go to confession and repent, etc. But usually, in general, those people fall away. Because when they see another miracle performed by a Buddhist or some other miracle from some other group, they'll get excited from that as well. Actually, if you listen to those talks, I can't remember which ones they have, but... Um, the word of God, things like that. I actually pointed out there that Christ spoke somewhat harshly when he said, woe to thee, you want miracles. But he said, but what is most important, he said, is the word of God. So if the word of God is so powerful, that means that the enemy, the devil, his demons, etc., don't want the word of God to be preached. Actually, possessed people, when, they, some, when sometimes the demons speak for them, they actually say that I'm the one who closes the mouths of the priests so they don't speak. Not all priests. Why? Why don't the priests speak? And I don't mean just a human type of sermon to be good people, 
but I mean to preach the word of God that's different to saying for us to be nice people and to say a little story from the Bible, etc. The word of God is hateful to the enemy of our salvation, and listen to those words, enemy of our salvation. He does not want us to be saved. And he knows that the word of God is powerful. And therefore, he persecutes those who preach the word of God. And that is why today, as the fathers of the church prophesied from centuries ago, that towards the end of time, the word of God will not be heard. It will hardly be heard. I'll leave that for you to ponder on. Let's now go to today's talk. We said last time that there are two basic, I mean, obviously this is just like a, a rough rule, there are two basic types of spiritual deception, Father Seraphim outlines. The first one, which was last week's talk, talk last month's talk 41, is type one, I call them type one deception, striving for a high spiritual state. And I spoke nearly three and a half hours on that. And type two deception, which is today's talk, striving for exalted spiritual feelings, like type one and type two diabetes. Some of you who know, I think there's some doctors present as well, type one diabetes is a very uh, advanced form of diabetes. And I think, where's the doctors here? I forgot now. There's Zora. Type one, I think you need injections. Is that correct? Yes. So you need insulin. So it's quite, a, and, and persons on that have to be very careful with their diet and they've got to get their insulin shots and they can even die if they don't get their insulin shots. And I call that type one deception, striving for a high spiritual state, because that's the worst one. And type 2 deception, like type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetes can be controlled through diet and maybe some pills, etc. It's a lesser form of diabetes. Now, what was type 1? What did I say last time? Well, Father Seraphim says, Father Seraphim Rose, in the book Religion, uh, Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future, he says that uh, type 1, striving for a high spiritual state, uh, states that this deception is the, he states that this deception is the more spectacular type. This is when a person strives to reach a high spiritual state, like that of the saints, or strives to see spiritual visions, like the saints did, or strives to acquire spiritual gifts, like healing, clairvoyance, like the saints had, without previous purification of the passions by repentance and true spiritual struggle. Such a person is full of self-trust and does not have a spiritual guide in general. They do not have spiritual guides because a, a, a spiritual guide wouldn't allow that. And God allows the devil to grant such people who seek these things visions and spiritual gifts, but not real visions and not real spiritual gifts but demonic ones. So like the saints could heal, these people can heal, but with the power of the devil. Like the saints had clairvoyance and they knew things, 
past, present, and future, and these uh, the devils can also give that type of gift to the to the deceived, where they can know the past, they can know the present, but only guess the future. Because they're spirits, they can guess the future. So this is what we say spectacular because it's very like it's extraordinary, supernatural, etc. So then what's type two? Well type two is striving for exalted religious feelings. Now Father Seraphim says, but there's another more common, this is the more common one, the other one you hardly see. It's very rare to see someone that says they see visions. And sometimes they don't and they could be mentally ill. But there are others who might see them because they're deceived. But in general, we don't see much of that. But there is another more common, less spectacular type of spiritual deception which offers to its victims not great visions, not miraculous powers, but just exalted like high feel, religious feelings or holy feelings. As St Ignatius has written, this occurs when a person desires and strives for the enjoyment of holy and divine feelings while the person is still spiritually unsuitable for them. What's these feelings? What, do, what is meant by feelings? Well, spiritual joy, peace, sweetness in the soul, love, a calmness, zeal, boldness, power, when someone says, I feel consoled by God, or just in general, experiencing grace, but not in the real sense. And if you notice here, every, sorry, everyone who does not have a contrite spirit, in other words, someone who doesn't have humility, someone who doesn't have repentance, and who recognises any kind of merit, in other words, the person thinks that they're worthy to receive these gifts, is in this state of deception. These people who are deceived like this believe that they are worthy to receive the gifts. Now, if you remember three, four talks back that I, that I read there from the fathers, that those saints who had true spiritual gifts... What did I say about them? What, did they, what was their attitude? What were those saints' attitudes? These saints who built monasteries, who converted thousands of people, who did miracles, who had foreknowledge, who um, had clairvoyance, etc., who healed people, who could fast for days and days and days without food and water. What, what were the attitude, especially with respect to the gifts like healing, yes? They didn't want them. They didn't want them. Why? Because they felt that they were, starts with you, unworthy. They felt that they were unworthy of those gifts. And not only that, they felt that those gifts were a burden, dangerous. They felt that by having those gifts that they could fall into deception that they can fall into pride and lose their souls. What was the most important thing for the saints was not these gifts, like these deceived people, and all of us, to some extent, you'll notice that we all have this type 2 to some extent. What was the most important thing to them 
not the miracles, not all these things, was that they could repent for their sins on a daily basis. If they had performed hundreds of miracles, but on that day they didn't have repentance for their own sins, they, they felt that they had achieved nothing. That was the attitude of the saints. That's completely opposite to the attitude of those of type 1 or those of type 2, where we think that we're worthy of receiving the grace of God. Now, some of you might say, what's wrong with experiencing some joy in prayer? What's wrong with experiencing some peace or sweetness or all those things? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. Let's go now to the next section. What else brings a person to strive for these things? So we already saw that people just want to strive for them. But why? Why do they want to strive for them? There are a number of reasons, but let's have a look at this. We, one, one other reason for this is that people read in the lives of saints and in monastic books in general about exalted spiritual states of the saints and try to imitate them. Now, I did speak about this last week and I'm going to speak a little bit more about it to set the, the mood for this talk, to set the tone. One of the biggest problems today facing Orthodox Christians is what's called the indiscriminate reading of spiritual books. Indiscriminate meaning that people just go and say, I like that book, I'm going to read that book, and I'm going to read that book. Without actually knowing whether that book is suited for them. And this is a problem. There are even books up the back there that are not for everyone. There's some books Rarely that anyone comes up to me, for example, or go to their priest and say, what do you think, Father? What book do you think is suitable for me? What do you think would be good for me to read? No, that doesn't happen because what we have is self-will. We want to read what we want to read. Well, let's, read, let's look about that. They read about, people who read these books, all of us, read about such things as spiritual joy, tears, spiritual peace, divine love. We read about saints that fasted strictly, they, they did miracles, clairvoyance, prophecy, healing. We read about words like um, theosis, or theosis, I think it's, I'm not sure how you say it in English, deification, illumination, divine vision, stillness, unceasing prayer, and even those who saw the uncreated light. So, the question I ask, aren't we commanded to imitate the lives of saints? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to imitate the lives of saints. And the answer to that or sorry, before I answer that, should we not read books like the Philokalia and other deep monastic books? Should we not read the lives of saints which describe their, their high spiritual states? This, to, this sounds like it's quite confusing for people because it sounds like I'm saying I'm, I'm against spiritual books. And uh, that is correct to a large extent. I am against people reading books that are that's not proper all the phones should be turned off so that's did that causes distraction now let's read a little let's before i answer more about that let's look at this example elder anatoly one of the obstinate elders was writing to a nun now this nun because he was he used to take care of nuns he only lived 150 years, I'm not sure how many years ago he lived, so he's close to our times. This nun was going through some type of temptation in her monastery, 
and she wrote to the elder saying, I want to leave this monastery and I want to go somewhere else where no one knows me to become a fool for Christ. Tack stupid, tack like an idiot. And so that people can, can put her down and spit on her and hit her. Obviously she read it in the lives of saints. One of the most famous is Xenia, the St. Andrew fool for Christ as well. This is what he answered. You have simply lost your mind. You say you are miserable and life is just impossible. In other words, where she was living. And now, he's saying, you want to become a fool for Christ and to go off to another convent, any other convent, humble yourself. And he spoke with exclamation marks, bang, bang, in other words, emphatically, like he was speaking strictly. And you want to go to another convent. And he spoke like as if he was raising his voice. Humble yourself. Elder Ambrose, he said, said to tell you that Quote, it is the saints who become fools. That is, for, those, for these holy people, their afflictions among the brethren, in other words, what they were suffering in the monasteries, because most of them were monks, but some of them were lay people, but let's just concentrate on the ones that were monks and nuns, what they were suffering in the monasteries, because in the monasteries people think that it's all angels. But no, that's not how it is. In the monasteries, you could have people that dislike you. You can have people that can hate you. Now, some of you might say, how can you say that a monk and a nun can hate someone else? Well, I only answer back to that, that anyone who actually even asks that question has no idea of spiritual life. All they've got to do is look at themselves and see how much hate we have, how much dislike we have, how much revenge, how much we don't, how much we get angry when someone puts us down, that's the same as them. They have to struggle. And it's true that in some, yes, that some people went through a lot. They would have water splashed on them by other monastics, which the devil was tempting, and some of them lived a life that was virtually in hell. And he said those people felt the sufferings that they were going through from the others in the monastery wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted to go out into the world, act like a fool, so that people can spit on them and hit them, etc., etc. So he says they were already holy, but they wanted to become holier. That is, for these people, holy people, their afflictions among the brethren are not enough, and they go seeking them out amid the crowds in the world. Now... Does that sound like you? Elder Anatoly says to her, does that sound like you? I ask the same question. Does that sound like us? When we can't even take our faults being said? All of us, including myself. Do I like my faults being said? No. Do you like your faults being said? No. So then how are we going to go and become, and in our fantasy think, oh, I'm going to become a fool for Christ, let's just say. And people do that. Russia, before the revolution, the whole place was full. A lot of them were deceived. Others wearing chains so they can cut into their bodies, so they can, you know, like some of the saints did. So they had people that were wearing chains, had others that were doing extreme fasting, others that were doing really big feats of asceticism that the saints did. Humble yourself. And I would have to say to Elder Anatoly, thank you for the advice for all of us. What do we have to do? Humble ourselves, all of us. From the life of Elder Leonard of Optina, Here's another example. 
which um, when I read this to someone the other day, they said this is, that was a fantastic example. Let's see if you like it. It says here, this is a person who's writing about his encounter with Elder Leonard. He was a novice, I think, of a monastery, of the, of the monastery where Elder Leonard was. So this is, this is what he writes. Once I wanted to learn about the difference in the kinds of prayer that are described in the Philokalia. Now, for those who weren't here last time, the Philokalia is a book which covers the 4th to 15th century of Holy Fathers, which speak about the Hesychus life, that is, those who lived away from the world in the desert that were basically focused continually on spiritual life and prayer. I was especially eager, writes this person, to read the chapters of Callistus Katafiotes. I don't know who that is, but someone in the Philokalia. But I doubted the elder would permit me to read them since I was still a beginner. So I went to ask for this book from him when he had a lot of visitors, thinking that since he was busy with important people, he would not bother to ask in detail about my reading. So that's a trick. Sometimes we all do that, don't we? We go to the spiritual father to ask something and ask him when he's just finished the liturgy or, or when he's extremely tired and then he goes, yeah, yep, okay, okay, without actually focusing on what's been said. You can trick the spiritual father, but you can't trick God. And here, it's the same thing. He thought he can trick the elder by going there and saying, while he was really busy, elder, can I have permission to read the Philokalia? So he thought he wouldn't ask him what he wanted to read exactly. Beyond my furthest expectation, however, Elder Leonard stopped his conversation with the visitors and with particular interest began to ask about why I needed the Philokalia and exactly what portions I wanted to read. So in other words, Elder Leonard stopped and without knowing what this person was going to ask, the person hadn't asked yet, but because he had that gift of clairvoyance, then he knew the trick that he was playing. When I explained to him, he gave me a stern look and said, how dare you take on such exalted matters? How dare you take on such high things? Which is what I said before about those type one, striving for a high spiritual state, Ex exalted. Type two, striving for exalted spiritual feelings. So this particular person also, by the way, had a lump on his, on his forehead. Now, why, why do I say that? Because then Elder Leonard said, he called him Lumpy. He goes, Lumpy, your business is not reading Callistus Catafiotis. It is more profitable for you to clean up manure. Remember, so that, that's interesting, isn't it? It's more profitable for you to clean up manure. As I was looking at this, I remembered the life of Elder Cleopa of Romania that died in 1998 who became, who was known as the spiritual father of the whole of Romania. He lived during communist times, very close to death from the communist. He was persecuted, etc. And he was known as the spiritual father of the whole of Romania. And people from other parts also went to him. However, his first years as a monk was taking care of the sheep out far away from the monastery. He wasn't even able to go to services because the sheep would be left alone. So therefore, he was told, you stay there. In other words, he didn't go to spiritual, he didn't go to, um, he was not with the other monks. 
He wasn't present at services. He accepted that. And he used to read his spiritual books there, and he stayed there. When the abbot was dying, the other monk said, who do you want to be the new abbot? And the abbot said to them, Father Cleopa. And then the other monks kind of said, oh, he's lost it. It sounds like the elders lost it because he's dying. He's not thinking well. How can he want a person who takes care of sheep to become the head of the monastery? But not to upset their abbot, they decided to go along with it and to install Cleopa as abbot. So they went off to the, to the sheep field where he was and brought him and they all kissed his hand and he came back to the monastery and people were snickering and laugh, kind of laughing and things like that at that how ridiculous can this person now be the abbot of the monastery. And then, to their surprise, Elder Cleopa opened his mouth and spoke for two hours on the deepest things of God. And then they realised that they were wrong, that the, that the abbot was enlightened and that he became the abbot. But not only did he become the spiritual father of the monastery, he became the spiritual father of the whole of Romania, whereby we have to say, look at the humility where he started. But no, if it was us, we would say, I don't want to take care of sheep. I want to be present at the service. I want to be there. I want to sing. I want to you know, do things. I want positions. See what pride does compared to humility. Then Elder Leonard reminded this deceived person. He says, remember Simon Magus, how he climbed up so high and fell down. When I read this, I go, Simon Magus was a magician who later on converted to the church. And when he saw the gifts that the apostles had, he offered the money and said, give me those gifts. I want those gifts as well. So he wanted the gifts. He wanted what we say, see, striving for a high spiritual state. He wanted to go to be the level of the apostles, not to be just a novice, or like a beginner, newly baptised. No, not him. He wanted to be there. And he says here, remember Simon Magos, how he climbed up so high and fell down. He went up high. I don't remember the story somehow. I think he put himself up in the air and then he collapsed. I, don't, I can't remember fully. And um, he was punished for wanting to the, the gifts prematurely. The same will happen to you. If you don't humble yourself, you will perish. At the time, I was standing before me on my knees and felt that I had been struck by lightning. Then the elder told me, let me see your cheeks. And after slapping me on the face a few times, he said, go your way with God. Now, some of you might say, an elder slapping him on the face. I think... A lot of times, that's what we all need. We need some slaps. But today, of course, spiritual fathers wouldn't do that because they scared they might get an AVO done on, put out on them. So what they do now is they pray for the person and say, God, you work it out. You work it out. And then from the prayers of the spiritual father, because he sees the spiritual child doesn't, is, is um, not listening, then God brings down slaps through temptations, passions. Usually the good ones are when the person, where God allows the demons to tempt the person into some sin, usually smaller sins, they fall. If they still don't repent, bigger sins, bigger sins, bigger sins, bigger sins. 
until the person repents. Saint Macarius often quoted from Saint John of the Ladder. Saint Macarius again of Optina. Now, why am I bringing this up? Is because if you, I like when I read these elders, these contemporary elders, because they always put the older writings into context. I don't personally, I don't read the older fathers because I don't trust myself. I don't know how to interpret them. So what I do is I read the more recent fathers and they put it into context for me. So he's quoting here St. John of the Ladder. Examine even as St. John of the Ladder is not a, from the Philokalia, he's not a father, as we say, of the Philokalia. He's more practical. But still, St. John of the Ladder wrote in the 7th century when monasticism was at its peak. St. John of the Ladder says, Examine the mind of inexperienced novices. Remember, talking about 7th century, not, not 21st century where we're out of it. This is 7th century. He says, St. John says in the latter, examine the mind of inexperienced novices and there you will find deluded ideas, like opinions and views. A dis- firstly, a desire for stillness, like to be cut off from all, everything around and just to be within themselves in spiritual life, like no distractions. The strictest fast, you will find in these people the, the, the want to have unceasing prayer for absolute freedom from vanity, not to have any vainglorious thoughts, for constant remembrance of death, because we are commanded to have remembrance of death, and they read the lives of saints, and the lives of saints say, Saint so-and-so, he constantly had the remembrance of death. Because when you have the remembrance of death, you don't sin. So the novices read this, or people that read these books um, in a, when they're not ready, and say, oh, the saint had remembrance of death. The saint didn't have any vain thoughts. That's what I want. For continual compunction, continual repentance. For perfect freedom from anger, no anger. For deep silence and surpassing purity. And if by divine providence they, they are without these things to start with, they jump in vain from one thing to another, having been deceived. So when they notice that they haven't got it, they try and get them. Now you might say, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with trying to get these things? What St. John means is that they try and get them like you go to the shop. Okay, So you go to the shop... And you feel like what? A Kit Kat, say. So you go and there it is. You pay your money and you've got the Kit Kat and you eat it. Immediately. These people want these gifts straight away. Immediately. No struggle. They don't understand that the saints who had these gifts struggled 30, 40, 50 years. They want them straight away. And a lot of times we want them straight away. And I'm sick and tired when people come and say, oh, well, you know, I've got filthy thoughts. And they despair. And I go, what's the problem? Go, but it's bad thoughts. And I said, so what? You have to struggle. And what, what, it's like what they're telling me is, I want to have pure thoughts immediately. No, no dirty thoughts. No pride. No anger, etc. Now, this is the important part. For the enemy urges them to seek these perfections prematurely. The devil wants them to strive for these things. Now you might say, how can that be? 
How can the devil want a person to strive for these things? These things are against him. Remembrance of death, strictest fast. Why would the devil want someone to try and get these things? Prematurely, St. John says, so that they may not persevere and attain them in due course. In other words, the devil wants them to want eat them, or these virtues, straight away. In other words, the person... Uh, I have to give an analogy, sorry, from my teaching days, but I just it's the only way I can do it. So we have a person in year seven, say the first year of high school. And I remember when I, when I used to do lessons, say I just had a, a year 11 class or something, and there was all this maths there, um, calculus, integration, all these complicated trigonometric functions, all that. So the, the, the little year sevens come in and they look at it and they go, oh, wow, look at all that. I want to learn that. I want to learn that. I want to do that. So in their delusion, they might say, um, I'm, I'm going to get the book that, the, that these kids, are, these students are using, and I'm going to read and read and read and read these books because I want to do that. What's the problem there? He doesn't want to go from year 7 to year 8 to year 9 to year 10 to year 11, etc., to develop over the years, four, five years, to get to that stage. And remember, if he can even get to that stage because he might not have the intelligence. Now, it's pretty much proven now, psychologists have said, that um, how a person is born, the level of their intelligence is basically what it is. Like if a person is born with intelligence, that's what they've got. Maybe you can increase a little bit and maybe it might decrease, but that's basically it. If a person is not born with intelligence, a person is born with lower intelligence, that's it. And you can't really much go higher than that. They might just go a notch higher in general. So there are people that even if they do the five years of maths, they will never get to that level. And I know that because I taught so many, and so um, and we have some teachers here. I'm sure they will be able to say the same thing, that it might not be possible. It might be possible. It might not. But the person who's trying to learn that level of maths like that, he will, he will never even learn the level that he's already at. He won't learn you. So by if he keeps on going and going and going and trying to learn this difficult level of maths, after three four years, what will he learn? He won't learn that level because it's too high. And he won't even have learned year seven, year eight, year nine. He wasted his time. That's the same what the devil wants us in spiritual life. He wants us to seek these perfections, these things that saints struggled and reached after many years. He wants that because he knows that we'll never get it. And not only that, we will miss the opportunity of struggling with little things and getting some success in the little things. So, you might say, oh, well, that's St. John of the Latter's times, that's not happening. No, I will speak to you, and, I was, and I, I'm speaking to you now, and I'm telling you. This is how it is even today with a lot of Orthodox Christians. They read these books wrongly, and they strive, and they say, this is the way I have to be. Okay, yes, but it takes years. This is the way it it has to be. I want it now. So I say to them, look, if you want something now, go buy Kit Kat. That you'll get now. But you're not going to get these things immediately. It's not going to happen. And you're being deceived. 
Without a doubt, this is now back to the notes, without a doubt, spiritual life has been at an extremely low level. In other words, spiritual life is very weak for the last few centuries, for quite a few centuries anyway. Few are those who are able to achieve the exalted spiritual um, states of the saints. It is important to realise that even among monastics today, those who are in monasteries, Mount Athos and things like that, even strict monasteries, few are those who are able to achieve such spiritual states as described in the um, lives of saints. Few. Saint Isaac the Syrian. Now, I read, I think, Father Seraphim or someone, no, Elder Macarius of Optina, he quotes Saint Isaac the Syrian. So I like that. He's quoting it, he speaks about it, and that helps me to understand. But it's a bit difficult for me to go to the raw, in other words, get Saint Isaac the Syrian and look through it, because I might read something and think I understand it, but I don't. I'd rather have someone else to explain it. But there are, of course, people who have the book of Saint Isaac the Syrian, lay people, and who read it as if they're reading an everyday book. Now, Saint Isaac the Syrian, who is a 6th century, oh, I forgot to check him, around there anyway, 6th, 7th century saint, he said the following, he wrote, Only one among thousands will be found who, after much vigilance, struggle, has been accounted worthy to attain pure prayer. Remember, we live in the 21st century, the time of TV and internet where our minds are sick. A lot of us have been brought up in front of the television from young. The fantasy is so active. But we said last time, the enemy of prayer, some of you said, is the devil. No, the enemy of prayer is not the devil. The devil needs something else to be able to fight us. The enemy of prayer is our fantasy, an active fantasy. Television promotes fantasy in the young. When those children grow up, those people cannot pray. They find it very, very difficult. When you put a child in front of a television from a few months old and it's there for one, two, three, four years, the child cannot distinguish between reality and fantasy, those children, when they grow up, in my opinion, they can't pray. God will save them through other ways. They are mentally damaged and emotionally damaged. And we're going to speak about that one day. Now, some of you might say, oh, that sounds like your opinion. And who are you to give your opinion? Well, that's true, so I'll help you. St Ignatius branching in of in the arena... I love this book, The Arena. It's written for monastics. However, he writes in a very sober way. He exposes all the delusions. And even if you're not a monastic, this book is good because it helps someone to become sober in the spiritual life. He exposes deceptions, etc. And actually, Father Seraphim Rose quotes continually from St. Ignatius Branchaninov. Now, it's called The Arena. Those on the tape. The Arena, an Offering to Contemporary Monasticism. And this book is published by Jordanville. And this is the, uh, some of the writings of St. Ignatius. It's an excellent book. I read it quite early in my spiritual life. And this one, 
kind of helped me to be a bit more balanced. I didn't read the other ones because they were too difficult for me. And I'm happy that I didn't. So let's look at what he says somewhere there. He said, he speaks about women. Women who read romance novels. I think I've mentioned this once before years ago. He said that, uh, well, in his times, like there was no TV. He lived a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, Women in general would read a lot of romance novels. Now, he says that those women who read romance novels, when they come to the church, because obviously if you're in the church, you wouldn't read romance novels. Imagine if you lived in our times and you saw that people don't read romance novels hardly anymore. Just watch it all on television where it's actually more powerful because you've got images. So if he's speaking about women in this way that I'm going to tell you now, reading romance novels, today is worse. But let's just go what he says. He says the women who read romance novels, when they come to the church and begin to want to become active members of the church and start to pray, etc., he says they can't do it. He says that they begin to look at the spiritual things in a romantic way, in an emotional way, in a sick way, not in a spiritual way. And he said the following harsh words. And this is why I can speak about the television for children. If he's saying this about women who probably might have started reading romance novels, what, 14, 15 back in those days? 17. Not when they were born like they have now in front of the television. This is when they got older. He says that those people who read those type of books and other types of books, he's talking about these, but not that he's putting down just women for that. He's speaking about this specific sickness, but he also speaks about other things, but I'm talking about this one now to help you. He said, those women who have read those books, romance novels, won't be able to lead a spiritual life in the sense of, well, I'm coming to that soon. They won't be able to lead a inner spiritual life because they're damaged. That's just, and if that's the case for women who started reading books at 14, 15, 16, imagine our poor children that are put in front of the television from that young. And we know that every single elder who has lived in our times, whether it's Elder Cleopas, Elder Paisios, Elder Porphyrios, uh, St John of Christ, and even before television, he spoke, he spoke ruthlessly against the, um, the theatre didn't like the theatre. He says it promotes passions. When people see things on the theatre, people acting with hate or whatever, as they kind of imitate, he was against the theatre as well. But all the saints that have lived in our times, they always spoke against the television. Does that mean that adults shouldn't watch television? I don't go to that level because then it's like we're a cult or something trying to cut you off from the world. People, if they, can dis- if they can discriminate to watch proper things like news or whatever, that's their business. Or watch documentaries, that's their business. Some people say to me, oh, I just I love watching documentaries. and all. Well, how much can you watch? What, the, 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 the mating cycle of a walrus? Like, how much, how, much, how, much can you, how much can you actually watch? Oh, but the Discovery Channel. The Discovery Channel talks about the little penguins and it's so cute and then how they lay their eggs and then the big bad balance, some things come and try and eat the eggs and they've got to fight them off and all this type of thing. Okay, that's good. 
but every single day you're gonna you're gonna that's just like um how much knowledge can we absorb so is it a sin to watch about the the maintenance cycle of the wars is it a sin to watch about the the, the penguins and I? No, not, not necessarily. Why? Why is it a sin? It's a sin when this distracts us and takes us away from God. Once people become conditioned to they just keep on going and more and more and more and more and more and they can't stop. And then later on there's just so much distractions in their mind like we read in um, last week, last month, where all the Haralambo said that all the images of what you've seen around the place or on the television, it just comes to you during prayer. So you can't pray. But for children, I would, I would say strictly, leave your children away from that contraption for as many years as you can. Seven, eight years, whatever, as much as you can. Oh, but they're going to have to learn educational programs. I'll tell you a secret. Today, the children that have lived in these last few decades have... As we say in Greek, hortasid in I don't know in English, like they've been, they've been oversaturated with educational programs, and yet the literacy level and numeracy level in the schools today are low. And I haven't taught for twenty years now, but I know teachers, and plus it's just so obvious. You talk to um, students. Oh, I don't know. We have teachers here. Is, uh, is it low? The literacy level low, and, and yet we have all these programs, DVDs, education, all this type of thing. So are we making children smarter or are we making them dumber? And I think the answer would be in general that this is a big problem. And Australia is quite low in literacy and numeracy. Now you might say, oh, but they do well at the, at the school certificate and HSC. That's because they scale them. So if the average of, say, a certain level of maths is 30... Well, they're not going to put that onto the score, so they scale them up and push them up to make them higher so people can think that they're good. It's called scaling. Anyway, that's another disease there. So it doesn't work. So keep your children away. Anyway, let's go back to this. And he said here that only one among thousands will be found who, after much vigilance, has been accounted worthy to attain pure prayer and to break through that boundary and to gain experience of that mystery. That mystery, I don't know, I think it must be maybe Theosis, I'm not really sure. Indeed, the majority of men have in no wise been deemed worthy of pure prayer, but only a very few. But as to that mystery, which is after pure prayer, so here we hear that there's pure prayer, and then there's another level, which is beyond that. What it is, I don't know. But let's just, it's something high. It says, as for, as for the mystery which is after pure prayer and lies beyond it, there is scarcely to be found a single man from generation to generation who by God's grace has attained thereto. In other words, that these great, great... Because you see, there are different levels of spiritual holiness. There's what's called illumination, which many, many, many of our saints had reached. But then there's another level which is called theosis. Theosis, I think it's English. And we might have some great saints that were at the level of illumination, but they hadn't reached the level of theosis. Some, he's, I think what he's trying to say here, that these ones that do reach that while they're alive is 
one from generation to generation. That's why I've heard, I can't remember who which saint, they said, oh, I remember when I went to Manathos, some of the fathers said that particular saint, he goes, you don't see that, you don't see a saint like that for a hundred years, some, like, expressions like that. But I can't remember who they were referring to, but that's the thing. Now, the great ancient fathers of the Greek philokalia at times speak far above the ability of present-day readers. That is, their writings are very deep. So I've already said that. These writings are directed almost exclusively to monastics of advanced life and total seclusion from the world. That is, only to a few. Now, I have to repeat that. Now, you might say, but why do you keep on going on? You said that in the last talk. The reason why I keep on going on about it is because this is one of the biggest reasons for people to have complete breakdown, spiritual catastrophes, deception, suicide, etc. He's saying that these writings of the Philokalia and some other deep monastic books are about monastics who lived in solitary. They didn't even live in monasteries. They, they lived in um, the desert on their own, a lot of them. An example of that is Elder Joseph the Hesychist, who died in 1959, I think. Elder Joseph the Hesychist. He lived a life of complete stillness. He lived in the desert of Mount Athos. He had attained high levels. I haven't read much of his life, so I don't know, but did he go to Theosis? I, I, probably. I'm not, I'm, I don't know much about those things. It's beyond me. However, he did, he did reach a high level. One of the greatest, greatest saints of the last century. Maybe he's one of those ones from generation to generation. Probably he is, I think. So, the question arises, if these books have the writings of the fathers who lived in the desert, who lived a life of a solitary, they were totally secluded from the world, then why then do people read them? Why do people read them? Orthodox Christians today, including the majority of monastics, by reading just the Greek philokalia, will have only one more opportunity to depart from the narrow path leading to salvation. In other words, Orthodox Christians, including the majority of monastics, and you might say, who are you to say the majority? No, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, by reading the Greek philokalia, they've been translated into English, those people, he says, have just another opportunity to fall away from the church. They get off the, the path leading to salvation. They lose themselves. Here's the path. You go that way. But when you read these books, you go off into these different paths and get lost. In other words, they dream of reaching a spiritual state for which they are not prepared or spiritually suitable, like I said earlier on, like the maths example. The person dreams, I'm going to learn that maths, but meanwhile is not learning the lower levels. 
and people who read this after a while, they think that this is the way it should be. We should have our minds free from thoughts. Our minds should be totally absorbed in God all day. So they read him and they go, that's the way I should be. And they walk around like zombies out of it. Some of them wear black. Some of them have prayer ropes around their neck. And they scandalise orthodoxy. Remember when I told you before last time, I said there was a person that I knew that he had a beard down to his belly button. He was a lay person. He'd walk around, walk around the suburbs that he lived in with a big prayer rope. And every time he saw someone doing sins, he would go and tell them off. He read the Philokalia, by the way. So, premature or unprepared reading of the Philokalia and other deep spiritual books can bring such people to the point of not fulfilling the basic commandments of Christ, of God. Just the basic commandments. So these people who read these things, they don't look at how to love their father or mother or husband or wife or children. or things. Like, do the commandments, give money to the poor. No, they're too busy reading these books and trying to reach that. So like the student, instead of learning that, you know, some simple algebra, x equals 2 and y equals 3, x plus y equals 5, instead of learning something like that and then building up, no, he's too busy trying to do, uh, trying to um, solve trigonometric functions and things like that. But it doesn't make sense. That's the same as the spiritual life. These unfortunate people are so puffed up that they can't even begin to look at the fulfilling of the basic commandments of God. They haven't got time for the commandments of God. And they find them boring and unattractive. Unattractive because it does not bring glory from others and glory in themselves, like self-esteem. So the commandments of God are of no significance in general to those people. See? And the devil likes that. He likes when people don't fulfil the basic commandments but try to chase... Uh, dreams, shadows, like St. John of Latter said, when you see someone trying to, sh- uh, when you see little children when they're playing when it's sunny and there's shadows on the ground and you see the children trying to catch their shadow, will they ever catch their shadow? No. So they're running, but as they run, the shadow goes, keeps on running. And it's the same as these people who, who read these books and they're trying to chase a shadow, an illusion. They won't get it. Especially when you hear comments like, that these are meant for monastics of solitary life. And also, some of you might say, how about if we read books about monastics of um, Kinovia? Kinovia means uh, the the common life in monasteries, brotherhoods. Well, we're going to come to that. (coughs) But remember that you people are lay people. In these books, in general, they don't mention about married life. They don't talk about when you have hate for your, um, for your wife or for your, for your husband, it doesn't talk about nappies and getting up in the night and milk feeding, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. One can ask, who are you to make such statements as, what I said before, monastics barely can lead a spiritual life and many are unable to understand or practice the ancient teachings of the Philokalia. Okay. Let's see what St. Nikolai says about that question. 
A holy father of the Egyptian desert, this is from the um, prologue, a holy father, which I recommend everyone to get. Everyone who's interested in spiritual life should have a, a prologue. Some of you have already got it. There are, there's, there's the old four-volume set, but they've got now newer versions, which is volume one and two. It's a couple of pre-pages for every day of the year. A few saints, a few writings of the, of, of the Saint Nikolai and, and Bible quotes and things like that. If you, just re- if, you, if you haven't got time to read and just read that, you will, and you read that through the whole year, you will receive so much help. Here's an example of, from, from his book on February the 5th. A holy father of the Egyptian desert was asked by his monks, Father, what have we accomplished? You know, you know they said, what have we done? That we who left our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and our properties and things, we've come to this desert. What have we accomplished? He says, we have fulfilled the commandments of God. The, the, the Holy Father replied. The monks asked him then, what will those who come after us accomplish? The Holy Father replied, they will accomplish only half as much as we have done. Again they asked him, how about those after them? The older replied, those in the last days will have no... He's talking about monastics. Those in the last days will have no monastic life whatsoever, but they will be permitted to have troubles and afflictions, in other words, assaults, temptations, etc., so that... So isn't that interesting what I was saying before when I was saying that monastics is very hard? There are still some very good monasteries, spiritual life, spiritual activity, but in general, no. And before the revolution in Russia, it was only Optina and a few others St. Seraphim's monastery, only a few pockets of Russia were leading proper spiritual life and hence why God allowed the revolution as a cleansing because they had gone so far off. There was no monastic activity there. As I said, only a few. He says they, those people won't have monastic activity. They won't have the prayers. We know it from the fathers. They won't have the inner life. They won't have that type of thing. Because they would just have troubles and afflictions, assaults and temptations. Now some of you might say, that's not fair. They haven't got the opportunity to receive the rewards that the ancient fathers had. And if that's the case for the monastics of today, how about lay people? So if monastics barely today can lead a spiritual life, how about lay people? Can they hardly lead spiritual life? And the answer is, hardly anything. I haven't even met people that can even pray. In general, people don't lead a spiritual life today. Now you might say, but that's so unfair. How does God allow such a thing to happen? God is cruel, one can say, or people can say. But let's see the answer to that. He says, So that through these trials, they will be revealed in the kingdom of God as greater than us, and greater than our fathers that lived before us. In other words, the monastics that will live in the, towards the end of time, when's that? I don't know. But we do live in times that are towards the end. But it might be 10, it might be 100, 200, I don't know. But the point is we live in very bad times. And the prophecy says... That those who live in those in during these times will be greater 
than the fathers that lived in the ancient desert, like in St. Anthony, St. Macarius the Great, and a lot of other holy fathers, will be greater. Now you might say, but how can that be? How can that be? Because temptation now is very subtle. It's not obvious. And when you've got technology, when, when, this, when, when these things were written, and even when other fathers wrote, even up to 60, 70 years ago, they didn't dream that in a few years' time there will be television and technology such as it is today and computers, internet. They never had any idea of that. And all those things don't allow people to lead a proper spiritual life. Does that mean you get rid of your internet? Does that mean you get rid of your um, TV? What I'm saying is that those things, uh, if they're not used properly, uh, obstruct us to become closer to God. And one of the greatest diseases today is internet pornography, which has become accessible to everyone, and even young children. So when you've got young children ex experiencing those things, then when you have those images in those children from young, when they've looked at those images, and harsh images, explicit images, very hard for those children to get rid of those images. But that didn't exist in the old days. See, there's all these things which make it incredibly difficult. So, abortion today is open. It's very easy. You can be in the city or go to work somewhere and you can go and have the procedure done and then go home. See, easy. But in the old days it was very difficult. Very difficult. And looked, and looked on as bad. Now, I'm not here for these women's rights and the right to choose and all these other things that they say. Abortion is forbidden in the Orthodox Church. If you want to be Orthodox, you don't do it. But the point is, it is. So if a woman today can get through her whole life without an abortion, she's great. She is, in God's eyes, she is Great. If she has the opportunity, in other words, if she's tempted, she has the temptation, then says, oh, you know, that'll be easier, it's too much for me, this and that. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that because it's God's commandment or a man or a female who are married where they can go and commit adultery so easily today, as you know, from, they've even got in websites, cheaters and things like that. Anyway, that's other thing there. But the point is there that it's so easy to sin today incredibly easy and those who resist that rightly the father say will be called great in the kingdom of heaven saint ignatius writes on this matter the holy fathers that is the monks of the early times of christianity were perfect christians filled with the holy spirit they had revelations from above and uttered prophecies about the monasticism of the last days all these revelations or prophecies agree with one another and declare that the monasticism of the last times will have an extremely feeble life, that it will not be given that abundance of spiritual gifts which the first monks received from God. But not only this, the monks of the last times will find salvation only with great difficulty, through the, as I said, through suffering, etc. He continues... 
A certain Egyptian father, these are, these are like fourths, Fourth, fifth century, this is many. A certain Egyptian father became a witness of a spiritual vision. He saw three monks standing on the seashore. From the other shore, he heard a voice. So, this person heard a person's watching this vision. There's three monks on the seashore there, and opposite is a voice which says, Receive wings and come to me. After the voice, two of the monks received fiery wings and flew across to the other shore. The third one remained where he was. He began to weep and wail. Why? Why was he weeping and wailing? Because he wanted to go to the other side as well. At last, wings were given to him too, but not fiery ones. They were so weak that he flew across the sea only with great difficulty and trouble, often becoming so feeble as he was flying that he sank in the sea. Then you come up again and go, his feet would fall in and in a bit up, and, and that's that. Now, these are all symbolic. God allowed this to appear. It's, it's obviously symbolism, not that monks have wings and things like that. But it's something that God allowed this monk to look at this vision in that way, to, to have a meaning. What is the meaning? The first two monks represented the monastics of early times, while the third represented, the one monk, represented the monasticism of the last times, poor in numbers and in accomplishments. And the sea is life, the life. And you see, he was sinking, sinking to temptations, whether they were passions, whether they were worldliness, etc., sinking, back up again, sinking, but weak. And that is the way that the Holy Fathers look at the monasticism towards the end of time. So afflictions and troubles have been especially given to monks of today, says St Ignatius. Such is the will of God. That's God's will. We can't say why and why and why and why. That's it. That's how God has allowed it. May this knowledge be a source of comfort to us. What does St Ignatius mean? He's talking to monks, obviously, but the same applies for all of us, the lay people as well, where it says... He says, may that be a comfort. Don't fall into despair when you read in the holy books how the monks had the spiritual activity and the prayer and the thoughts and the purity and, the, and they were able to you know, combat with their passions and the demons, etc., etc. Don't fall into despair when you see that you, that you can't do a lot of that. Don't fall into despair when you feel that the temptations of the world are engulfing you. And it's the same with the lay people. Don't fall into despair. It says, Therefore, let us with all our heart give ourselves up to our training, not spiritual training as we say, even though we still make the attempts, but here he's talking about what training? Training through troubles and sufferings, etc. Together, not, not just uh, going through those sufferings, something else you have to do as well together with the most careful fulfilment of the commandments of the gospel. Focus, try to fulfil the commandments of the gospel. And when, you, when we fail, what do we do? We offer God repentance. Then we get up and try again and again and again. How to avoid spiritual deception? In order to avoid spiritual deception, it is important to study the fathers of recent centuries. 
which is what I've been trying to say. Fathers that have lived close to our times. These fathers become our link with the great ancient fathers of the Greek philokalia. A link. What does that mean? They connect us. We don't want to lose this tradition, this wealth which the fathers of the church have offered to us, but we can't just read it by itself. We need someone to help us link with these fathers. These fathers, these more contemporary fathers, become our link with the great ancient fathers of the Greek Philokalia. This includes those who have lived in our times, for example, and the others that lived in the second, like for example, the second half of the 20th century. The majority of them haven't even been canonised yet. In other words, they connect us with these ancient fathers. For example, the last few centuries, fathers that would put the ancient fathers into context. Saint Tikon of Zdonsk, he died in 1783, a couple of hundred years ago. But he, he wrote, and there's a book from him at the back, which is dedicated to Christians that live in the world. Bring it. Saint Tikhon of Zdonsk. That's dedicated to people who live, how to live in the world as Christians. Do people buy that book? No. What do we buy? We buy Elder Joseph the Hesychist. Married people buy Saint John of the Ladder. Married people buy Philokalias. People in the world buy all these difficult books. Then we have Saint Theophan the Recluse, which I dedicated talk 42, a lot of his writings on prayer, and you saw how he put everything so beautifully. All for people who live in these times. How he explained things. He said, don't try and think that you can get unceasing prayer. You're not, that's not how you do it. Just pray, do your prayer rule. Anyway, it's all in talk 40. St. Ignatius Brenchaninov, which I just mentioned before. He connects us with the Holy Fathers of the past. In, uh, I think he's one of the best. Saint Nicodemus the Athenite, Saint Nectarius of Greece, Saint Paisius Velichovsky, which we read a lot last week, the Optinate Elders, one of them being Saint Macarius. The second half of the 20th century till today, Saint John of Shanghai and San Francisco. He's a Holy Father, but he didn't teach the raw teachings of the ancients. He put it into the times that he was living. He died in 1966. Elder Porfirios died in 1991. Even though he does go a bit deep sometimes, but in general, very good advice. Elder Paisios, 1994. Father Seraphim Rose, 1982. Elder Haranabus Dinusiatis, which we have a book of his, he goes a bit deep, but he also puts into context. People cannot do the noetic prayer. People cannot do the Jesus prayer, the prayer of the heart, the strictest one, without having a guide. He strictly forbids that. Elder, Epiph elder Epiphanius Theodoropoulos, 1989, a great elder. I met him back before he died in Athens. Elder Philothos Zervakos, 1980. Elder Favelos of Serbia, he died in 2003. There's a book dedicated, he writes about the Christian spiritual life. Saint Justin of Serbia, 1979. Saint Nikolai of Serbia, 
his book there on the, the he wrote a lot of books, but one of the best is the prologue. Elder Cleopas of Romania, he died in 1998. Elder John Christiankin died in 2006, a Russian elder. And others, Archbishop of Verki of Jordanville, 1975, and many other fathers that have especially been featured in the excellent Orthodox magazine called Orthodox Word. That is one of the best Orthodox magazines. They, they write all these lives of elders and things like that, just very, very good. Orthodox Word, which is produced by the Brotherhood of St. Herman of Alaska, Platine, I think they say. So let us not forget the following, that God will always give us holy fathers to guide us. There are even some who live among us at the time. I believe, for example, Elder Frem in America, and there's others in Greece. I've lost a bit of contact. I haven't been over there for years. But there are fathers in Russia, in Romania, etc. Fathers who give us sober instructions with discernment. Now, let me tell you a secret. But after today, it won't be a secret, will it? So the secret is as follows. All because someone's holy, it doesn't mean that they've got discernment, that they've got the gift to, to guide souls. So some of people forget that. So, for example, there was, in the writings of the fathers, a certain, I don't know what he was, a, a father of some type, and he gave guidance to someone. That person who he gave guidance to fell into heresy and fell into sins and lost himself. But this person was holy. And the answer to that is not everyone is able to guide souls. So we can have spiritual fathers today who speak exactly in the way of the ancient fathers, but they, and even though they're holy, they have not got th that gift of discernment. Now, St. Ignatius branching off, he had the gift of discernment. The Optina elders had that gift of discernment. God gives that gift when necessary. Father Seraphim Rose had that gift of discernment. They were able to say, to pre present orthodoxy in a way that is proper for people of the times that they lived in. So don't think that all because someone is holy, that means that they necessarily have that gift. I've met some people that said to me years ago, goes, you must read the whole gospel every day. In other words, you've got to read the, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John every day. The whole, in other words, the whole four gospels. Others have said you read in one week the whole New Testament. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. My zeal was a bit lacking in that department. But still, what, what did I learn from that? One, I walked away and said, look, look at me, how far off I am, that I can't even dedicate my, my time to read the whole gospel every day if I really, and we'll come to that more, but if, if we really had zeal, we would be doing more. But that's it. But that was him. But then you go to another spiritual farm, they go, look, just read a chapter a day, etc. You know, just do that, or try and absorb... See, there's differences. So we have to find the fathers that had that gift of discernment. Father Seraphim Rose, he put together a book called Saints Vasanufius and John. 
guidance towards spiritual life. We have that book as well. And I think Saints Vasinus and John lived in the uh, 6th century. They were as well quite deep, like the instructions and things. But what did, all the, what did Father Seraphim do? He picked out all the sections, or not all, but a lot of sections, which were good for people that live in our time. So he picked things that he believed would be helpful for us. Not just to give a person his elders, Vasinus and John, which had a lot of deep things in there, too deep for us. Pick the few, so I like that. These fathers are like what we call, some of you might know, in the plumbing world, it's what's called reducers. What's a reducer? So we have a big pipe. And then the flow, because a lot of water can come through that pipe, is just too powerful. So when it comes out at the other end, it can, well, it can do damage or whatever. It's too powerful. So what they do is the plumbers put what's called a reducer. So they put on there another little connector, a link, but that comes into a smaller hole. So it reduces the flow. So as this water comes, it's kind of stopped, and then as it tries to find its way out of a smaller hole, so as the water comes out, it's not as powerful. The same as with uh, sunglasses because we cannot take the, the light, it's just too strong. So we wear sunglasses because it diffuses the light. It makes the strong light so we can bear it, it's too much. I like, why I'm using those examples is because the writings of the Holy Fathers are so bright, they're so powerful that we need sunglasses, filters, etc., reducers, to help us to take in some of those things of the Holy Fathers and not be blinded or damaged in the process. You can't just look at the sun. You become blinded. You can't stand in front of that pipe as it's coming full force because you might have no hair left. It will just knock you down. So it's the same with the Holy Fathers. They're too powerful. They're too bright. They're not for us. So that's why we use the, these filters, these links, which are the contemporary fathers who put it into the correct context. Father Seraphim, St Ignatius and other contemporary fathers often quoted from the writings of ancient fathers, such as St John the Latter, like I said before, St Isaac the Syrian, St Gregory of Sinai, St Macarius of the Great from Egypt, St Peter Damascene, St Mark the Ascetic, Avar Dorotheos. But they would choose parts of the writings that were relevant for, for the times that, which they wrote for the spiritually weak times. They would, and they would explain these writings. I would never tell someone, here's a book on St. Mark the Ascetic, or here's a book on St. Macarius of Egypt, the Great, sorry, because those books have the, 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 the teachings in, in, in the raw, one can say, which is way beyond. Does that mean that we must not read books about the exalted spiritual states in the lives of the saints. Well, St. Macarius of Optina uh, will, will answer for us. And I read this last time. How should we look at these ancient books? The holy and God-bearing fathers, this is St. Macarius of Optina, wrote about great spiritual gifts. They're there. We, obviously, they're there. Not so that anyone might strive indiscriminately to receive these gifts. We've said that already. You don't just read them so you can say, I want that. 
like a child in the supermarket aisle. It sees a toy, it sees a chocolate, it sees some jelly beans, and it starts going like having a tantrum. I want that now. That's the same as us. A lot of times because of our fantasy, we say, I want that now. I want what they had. They were written so that those who do not have them, these gifts, by hearing about such exalted and great gifts and revelations which were received by those who were worthy, the saints who were worthy, they, they were worthy to receive these gifts, these gifts. So we read about it, that by reading that we might acknowledge our own great spiritual sickness and many weaknesses and limitations. And what does that equal? When we acknowledge that we're spiritually sick, when we acknowledge that we're weak, when we acknowledge that we're limitations, what does that equal? Formulas. Ready? So we say, uh, spiritual sickness, realisation, plus weaknesses, that we realise that we're weak, plus that, we've, that we have limitations, equals, what's the, what's the it? Humility. Humility. See, uh, math, you learnt some maths today. Mathematical formula. Humility. Now, some of you remember those movies, that, those stupid movies of vampires, how people, how they used to say, they used to say, oh, when you show the cross, the vampire goes away. Remember that? And it used to be stupid things, and the vampires used to go like that. That's how some people are today. Some people, when they hear the word humility, they go, ooh, whoa, we, whoa. No. That's, a, that's like you're scorching them. And to some degree, we all have that. A lot of us find humility aversive, repulsive. Why? Because we don't have that spiritual life. We have to ask God for humility. But beware that when we ask God for humility, if he sees you're sincere, he'll give you humility. But how? Through afflictions. Not by learning the Jesus prayer, which we, of course we, we still attempt that, we read it, we read all that, but through afflictions. Why not? Why can't God give us the humility that the saints had through learning by having spiritual activity? Why can't we learn and say, well, look at the saints. They had a prayer rope and they would do the prayer rope and they would say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and God will give them grace. And from that grace, they receive humility. Why can't we have that? Why do we have to go through afflictions? Who knows? Anyone know? Sorry? We live in apostasy and therefore we are open to, 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 to pride. We are open to deception. So, for example, when someone does the prayer rope and just does it all nicely like the saints did every day in their prayer rule, they're doing it, no problems, etc. That can lead someone to pride. Pretty much 99.9%. However, what doesn't give us pride is when we're being smacked continually down through um, sicknesses and sufferings, problems with children, people dying, etc. Those things don't give us pride. And that's why God has chosen for these times that we live in to save us through these ways. Wars, for example, as well. And because of this self-realisation, that we're weak, etc., they might be inclined to humility, which is more necessary for those seeking salvation than all other works of, and virtues. What does that mean? The publican and the Pharisee, which we heard in, in Lent. The Pharisee, he had virtues. He fasted, he, he gave one-tenth or whatever he did there. He had virtues. But one thing he didn't have was humility. 
and he was there saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that, this, this and that, and I do this, this and this. So he was boasting about his virtues. So he did have virtues. The other one, the publican, was, was considered the worst in those times. They were the tax collectors. They were set by the Romans. They say you would collect the tax, and what they would do is they say to people, okay, what's, let's, look, let's look at the list. Okay, uh, John has to pay certain amount of tax, but what they would do is add more to it so they can get money for themselves. They were hated. They were the worst of the worst in those times. So the publican, he went to the temple of God and he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. He acknowledged his passion, he acknowledged his sin, and God justified him with no virtue whatsoever except for humility. That's what the St. Macarius is saying. What's the point in having the spiritual activity of the ancients and the saints, etc., if you're going to get right? He goes, what's most important is look at them and say, look at those saints. Look at the virtue that they had. Look at the purity that they had and say, what am I? A piece of rubbish. I'm nothing. And what does that give? It gives humility and God will save us just on that humility. He continues, read the patristic book, says St. Macarius, but read the ones which speak about the active life because in your state, contemplation can bring more harm than good. That's what I mean by contemplation is those philokalias, that's all to do with contemplation. Those, those fathers were completely absorbed in prayer continually. That was their whole activity was the spiritual life. And there's the other books which are called the active, to do with how to um, struggle in a practical way. And for Father Macarius, St. Macarius is saying, you know, read the active ones. From, and for people living in the world, read books, like I said, St. Secret of Zion, St. John Chrysostom, books which speak about people living in the world. Does that mean we don't read any monastic books? Yes, of course you're going to read. There's some excellent advice in a lot of those books. But remember one thing. You're not monastics. And read books, especially to do with married people. To do with people living in the world. Read fathers that live in our times that explain the temptations about pornography, about the abortions, as I said before, about adultery. Talk about the times that we live in, the television, the internet, etc., etc. We've got a lot of fathers that speak about those things. That's what they don't talk about it in the ancient books. But we don't reject them, but read the contemporary ones who put into the correct context. From the books on the active life, you will learn your own weakness and humble your heart. And then God, gazing down upon you, will send his aid for the fulfilment of his will. Once you read these books in the correct spirit, give humility, and you say, oh, look how far away I am, then God will give his mercy to that person. From the Patericon, which is a book on written on the um, sayings of the Desert Fathers, etc. A brother asked an elder, saying, What should I do for I read the writings of the fathers and do not do what they teach? Now, this is written 1,500, 1,600 years ago. So he says, he said, this person said, he went to it. And remember, this person who's asking the question was quite advanced already in spiritual life. He was living in the desert. So he went to his old and he said, well, I read these books, but I don't put them into practice properly. The older replied, if you read the words of the fathers and do not practice them, humble yourself and you will receive God's mercy. 
what I said before. This is one of the highlights of the, of the talk. But if you don't read them, you won't be humbled, nor will you receive God's mercy. So, yes, we do read some of the fathers and the difficult ones a little bit. Read them. Not with the thing of that I'm going to do it, but read them and say, look how far away I am. And then that will give us humility. And he says, if you never read them, you wouldn't be humble. That doesn't mean you're going to go and read Philippians. I mean, there's a lot of books, even the ones which are just lies of saints. You just see the virtues of the saints. That's enough to humble us. So we must approach the writings of the fathers as follows. One, with fear of God. Remember my analogy I said last time? When we approach communion, the priest comes out holding the chalice. With fear of God, faith and love draw near. With fear of God, you approach communion. With faith, you approach Holy Communion, that's the body and blood. With love, love of God. With, with fear of God, faith and love draw near to approach to that Holy Chalice. That's good advice that this priest says every single liturgy. But I said last time, how about with fear of God and faith and love draw near to the readings of the Holy Fathers? Just like if we commune unworthily, we, score, we, can be, we, we can become burnt. And as St. Paul said, many have fallen asleep and are sick, meaning that many are communing, not being prepared without repentance, and it, the communion burns them, and some of them have even died. That's the same way with the writings of the Holy Fathers. You go, oh, but no, how can you compare the writings of the Holy Fathers with the Holy Communion? The Word of God... Remember, Christ is the Word of God. The Holy Fathers write the Word of God. The writings of the Holy Fathers are holy. Just like the Bible, all the words of the Holy Bible are holy. And we don't approach that either without fear of God and faith and love. We approach that with trembling and, and, and say, I don't understand the Bible, and that's why we read the interpretation of the Father's who interpret the, the, the um, Bible, not like the Protestants who believe that they're Holy Fathers and that they can interpret it themselves. So with fear of God, faith and love draw near to the writings of the Holy Fathers. Let us not partake of the writings of the Holy Fathers without that because we will get burnt. And we read last time that Many commit suicide, many have lost themselves, deceived, etc. We heard that in the last talk, 41. Number two, with humility and without... And so many went, sorry, many lost their minds. and We'll hear more about that in a minute. With humility and without trusting in our own wisdom and judgment. So we approach with humility, without saying, I can understand it myself. No, we don't understand them. We need the fathers that are close to us to explain them to us. And even to understand the fathers that are close to us, we approach them with humility and say, please, God, help me to understand if it's for my good to, under to understand it at this time of my life. We must, number three, we must seek guidance of those who are experienced in the spiritual life. For example, like spiritual fathers, monks, abbesses, nuns, etc., that we seek out. Of course, there's spiritual fathers that confessors in the world, but there's no reason that you can't seek advice from those who are more experienced. Usually you ask the permission of your spiritual father to 
approach someone else to get some things. If that's your level, some people say, I want to go and ask someone else some deep things. And I said, but you don't even listen to what your spiritual father says on that level, so why do you want to go on that level? Why don't you just listen? You don't even listen. He goes, oh, yes, I do, but you don't. You don't listen to what your spiritual father says. So until you learn to listen to him, then don't go and seek somewhere else because you'll get burnt. We must have the humble intention of beginning the spiritual life at the lowest step. People refuse to start at the lowest step. People come to orthodoxy or people that are already in orthodoxy and they find it, when they hear the words, to start at the lowest steps, step, they find that that's like they're being scorched, like someone threw hot water on them. And that comes from the lack of humility. When I meet people and they say to me, Father, can you tell me what to read? I want easy things, just basic things to help me to start off. Oh, I love those people. But when I meet people that say to me, I want to read something like, um, you know, something deep, I go, why? I want to read something deep. Well, I'm not going to give you permission to read anything deep. If you want, go find someone else. I'm not going to be responsible on the last judgment for giving you permission to read something that's deep and beyond you whereby you might actually lose your mind. Number five, we must remember that those who live in the world are not monks or nuns or strict ascetics and that they need to lead the life of an ordinary, God-fearing member of the Christian laity. That was the advice last month that I said in the talk of Elder Macarius of Wapton. He was writing to some person who was doing things there and he was not eating meat on Mondays and not eating, no, I think he wasn't eating meat at all, he was a lay person. And he was doing all these high things and he said, just lead the life of an ordinary, God-fearing lay person. Today people say, oh, I'm going to, with my wife, we're going to hold. And then some spiritual fathers give that permission. That's after someone's progressed. Some people say, I'm not going to eat meat at all. I've got a person who sometimes contacts me and says that in his mind, this is what he says, in his mind, if he has a little bit of meat, he says, I'm inflamed with sexual passion. I said, you're inflamed with madness. Not sexual passion. What's a little bit of meat? How's the meat going to give you? So why? Because he read in the Philokalias and all those books, those ascetics who used to have just bread and water or some, some roots from the ground in the desert, because that's all they had. And then they would say, but if they ate something with some oil or something a little bit more, then they would get inflamed with sexual passion. And he thinks he's them. Just I say it again. Let those who live in the world remember to be God-fearing members of the Christian laity, lay people. Number six, importantly, we must not even dream of ourselves achieving those exalted spiritual states which are totally beyond us. That's a no-no. Don't dream of those things that you read and think, I'm going to do that. Number seven, 
When we do not have access to such teachers, then our teachers must be those fathers who, especially in the times close to us, have told us specifically how to read and how not to read the orthodox writings on the spiritual life. Look, the truth is that spiritual fathers are very scarce today and there are priests who have no idea of prayer and things like that who even give advice, which is just totally uh, ludicrous. That's why, like, we look for the best doctor. That's what the fathers say. Like, you look for the best doctor, you don't go to any doctor because a lot of them are quacks as well. So you go to them and then they, and then they um, give you um, medication for blood pressure. Then after that, when you start having stomach problems, then they give you some other, something else for the stomach problem. Then after that, they give an anti-inflammatory and that causes stomach problems. Then they give you something else and something else and something else. It's just like, it's just sometimes it just goes ringy, ringy, rosy. And when you say to yourself, well, I'm going to go and find a good doctor. That's for our bodies. How much more should we go and find the best spiritual father for our souls? If we're barely leading a spiritual life and we're not interested in spiritual life, don't go to a good spiritual father because, again, you'll be burnt which we're going to see soon. Some people say to me, I want to find my spiritual father isn't that good. And I said, well, wh why? Because, oh, he's this bad world, I don't know what he says there. And I said, but then again, are you any good? What have you done to show that you're worthy of having a better spiritual father? Do you pray? Oh, not really. Do you do this? Not really. Then why do you want a better spiritual father? So that when he tells you you have to pray and you're disobedient, that you actually then, um, then you consciously don't listen to him and put fire on your soul. So that's why a lot of times God gives us spiritual fathers which aren't that strict because if they were and people don't do it, then we put more fire on our heads for disobedience. So sometimes we say we deserve what, what, we, you know, what we have. Remember the, the Holy Father said, why don't we have good spiritual fathers today? And the answer was because there are no good spiritual children that deserve to have good spiritual fathers. So then when we complain and say, oh, but there's not many spiritual fathers, the reason being is because God gives them when someone has a good disposition. Okay? That's it now for that part of the talk. We're going to have a break now. And then the next half will then lead us into this type 2 deception about these feelings and, and how do we know if we've got, if joy is really spiritual, if the peace we feel is spiritual, if the love we feel is spiritual, if the zeal we feel is spiritual, if the consolation we feel is spiritual. Someone said to me, because sometimes I might read a little bit of what I'm going to talk to to someone, and the other day I read a bit, and they said, oh, where do you find all these things from, they, he, um, she said. And I said, well, you read and you pick the things which are helpful that I know will help people. See, my, my aim is to present to you people, and to myself, because I'm learning as well, things that are going to benefit your soul. I don't do this for my glory. If I did, they wouldn't be successful. I do the talks because that's what I feel is necessary for today for people. 
So I believe that God will not leave those who have a good disposition. Never will leave them. It doesn't matter if there's... You know what the Father used to say, Manathos, I remember once he said, even if you're on a mountain and you're, no one's around and you have need of someone and you've got a disposition that if there was someone there, you would take advice from them, because God knows if you would take advice. He said that God will help you, will help that person. But if, for example, we are living, say, say we're in Sydney, and we know that there's a spiritual father that has some good reputation, his guides, souls, he's interested, and we have the potential to go to that person and we don't, then that means that God will not help you because you have the opportunity to go to a human being, to a priest, to God's representative to get the help. But as for those who might not have any opportunity, then God will help them directly. But he knows who would and who wouldn't listen if they had the opportunity to get guidance. Okay, let's um, continue. One of the main topics Orthodox Christians of today find confusing is that of prayer. Now, because of this, many have fallen into deception. People don't know how to pray, which we've already said a lot about that. Thanks to our friend here, Zora, who actually said that she wanted to talk on prayer, but I don't think she expected that she was going to get four or five in a row of three and a half hours each, making them nearly 20 hours of talk. <laughs> so last talk, I went through the five levels of prayer. And people at the end of the talk, and those who heard the talk later on that were present, said that they really appreciated that because they've never really understood it. I'll quickly summarise what I said last time that will lead us into the next topic. Number one, prayer with words. Now, this is when one prays only in words. That is, the tongue says the holy words of prayer while the mind wanders away somewhere. In this case, prayer is merely words and not prayer at all. So this is just basically what it says, is that someone's praying, they're reading, but their mind is completely somewhere else. They do not remember anything that they've read. And I said last time that... A lot of people are at that stage, but there's also people who can pray a bit better, but fall into this. And I, and I confessed myself and said that I've, when I'm reading, say, a prayer, and at the end of it, I realised that uh, my mind was completely somewhere else for the whole prayer. And we talk about, in talk number um, uh, 40, about what to do when you, when, you lose, when you lose concentration, things like that. I'm not going to go through that again. Number two, that first one's prayer with, the wor with words. Prayer with the mind, is this is different to prayer with words, is because what you're reading, you understand. But this is not complete prayer. This is incomplete prayer. And that's a good level to be at. At least you're at that stage where you're reading the prayer, you can concentrate on the words and you understand them. 
That's the next step. It's incomplete prayer, but it's a good. It's good to start with. Number three, prayer with the heart, or prayer in the heart. This is when one prays not only in mind but also in the heart, so that the mind sees and understands clearly what the what is said in words, and the heart feels what the mind thinks. All this together is real prayer. This type of prayer is achieved by our own efforts and the help of divine grace. In this state, a person feels contrition and humility. Now, in other words, what's this prayer? This is real prayer. It's when what you read, praying with words and praying thoughts are combined with praying feelings. You read, you understand what you read, and you feel what you're reading. That's prayer. In other words, this is real prayer, and the, this, this comes from unseen warfare, and the, the Saint Nicodemus, Saint Theophanes Chris there, I don't know who said it, but they say there that this level, level three, is the type of prayer that is accessible to all and demanded of all. This is the prayer we should aim at. So I'll say it again, that what we read, we understand the words, and we feel what we read. That's what Christians are meant to be aiming at. The next level, level four, prayer of the heart, which is what we read a lot in these monastic books, is when the Holy Spirit moves in the heart. The man who prays is conscious of it, but does not do it. It acts by itself. During this prayer, there is no distraction. The prayer belongs to the perfect. It is also called noetic prayer. So this is the monastic prayer, the you know, proper prayer, is when the, the Holy Spirit is praying in the person's heart of its own. The person makes no effort. It's happening of its own. But obviously the person's built up to that by going through levels one, two and three. So that's called noetic prayer. This belongs to the perfect that's what the fathers say. And during this prayer, when the person is absorbed in this prayer, in the heart, the prayer is running on its own, the person is not distracted. Now, Elder Haralambos says, even if the house is burning, even if people are firing bullets everywhere, etc., the person who's in this state, not that he's in a trance, he actually does not lose his prayer. This is the prayer of the heart. The other prayer, level three, what the Father says, called prayer with the heart or prayer in the heart. You feel what you're reading. That's a different level. And number five, standing in the presence of God. This is called unceasing prayer and can become permanent. Now, would you like to know what level five is? Standing in the presence of God. Well, I can't because I don't understand it. Right, it's beyond me. That's it. That's the level. I looked it up. I tried to read it. I couldn't understand. Is it theosis? I'm not sure what it is, but it's a very high level of prayer. If we're not even at level four, level three, sorry, if we're struggling to even do level three, and I tell you the truth, there are a lot of people who say to me, I can't feel the prayer. So in other words, they can't even get to level three. So isn't it blasphemous to try and do level four and level five? St Ignatius writes on unceasing prayer, which is the level five, it is obvious that unceasing prayer cannot be the possession of a monastic novice. 
and I right now, how much more does this apply to Christians in the world? And St. Ignatius says, when St. Paul says, pray without ceasing in the, in his, in the epistle to the Thessalonians, I think, the apostle means Christians who have reached Christian perfection. This means that Christians have reached a very high level for them to be able to say, yes, same, we read that in the epistles, pray without ceasing. But we have to know that to be able to do that, one has to have advanced in spiritual life. Now, Elder Porphyrios writes, the most dreadful delusion can be created by spiritual prayer. Other prayers are prayed to a large extent by our mind, like I said, level two. Praying with the mind, you understand. He goes, that's basically where a lot of people are. That's all the Porfirio speaking. We simply say them and our ears hear them. They are said in a different way, but spiritual prayer is something else. Now, what is he speaking about? Is he speaking about level three, prayer that we feel in our hearts, or is he talking about level four, prayer of the heart? We'll see. If Now he continues. If in this state of spiritual prayer, desire comes, not by your good self, but by the other self, the egotistical self, in other words, out of pride, desire comes. What type of desire is he speaking about? He's speaking about spiritual experiences then undoubtedly you will begin to live in delusion and to experience a pseudo-joy. Pseudo-joy means a false joy. It talks about people can fall into deception of seeing lights and other things like that, which can lead people to madness and suicide. So, what does Elder Porphyrios mean by spiritual prayer? In the beginning when I read it, I thought he was more talking about the Jesus prayer, like being the deep prayer, level four, prayer of the heart. But he says here, the other, he's talking about, he said the other prayers are prayed to a large extent by our mind. So I'm assuming that spiritual prayer that he's speaking about can also be level three, which is the level which most of us should be aiming at, which is to pray with the heart or pray in the heart, to feel the words. So when we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, our mind is concentrated on the words, we understand the words and we feel what our mind is read is, is understanding. And probably, look, probably he's speaking more about the other one, the level four, which is the, the, the deeper one. However, I can't help thinking that by him saying the other prayers are prayed to a large extent by our mind, I think he's probably meaning that even this level. And this is where I want to go on, this level of prayer, which is the prayer that every Orthodox Christian should be aiming at, can be dangerous because of our inexperience and our stupidity. And that's why he says, from our pride, we want to experience these spiritual things. What things? The things of the saints. Joy, love, etc. Let's have a look. We read in the last talk, it said, the warnings of the Holy Fathers concerning deception also applies to the lesser struggles of many Orthodox Christians. Because in the last talk, 
Some of you said, oh, well, that's just for people who are looking for visions and spiritual gifts. But we're not, we're not at that level. All we do is pray and we try to fill the prayer. And I read last time that the Holy Father say, it's not just those big, big things that, that are dangerous, but also the little things that we read in the lives of saints. Even simple fasting, people can fall into deceptions. Even prostrations, even just... Uh, Praying with our heart can lead one into deception if they're not careful. When one begins to pray, he's tempted straight away. It doesn't matter. As soon as one begins to pray, this is, where you, this is why it's dangerous. When one begins to pray, he's tempted with blasphemous thoughts, vain thoughts, filthy thoughts, with physical and spiritual problems of all types. Is also tempted by people, like people... Uh, start to hate you more and things like that. Apart from this, one experiences certain feelings which can be difficult to know whether it comes from God or whether it comes from the devil or whether it comes from our fallen nature. What things? Joy, peace, love, consolation, sweetness, calmness, boldness, power, zeal, all these things that we can experience in prayer. A lot of times, where's it coming from? Unfortunately, little people say, whatever they feel in prayer comes from God. Hardly no one says, is that from God or is that from the devil? This is the problem. For this reason, spiritual guidance is highly advisable for those who pray, which includes prayer with the heart or in the heart. In other words, level three prayer, which is the prayer that all lay people should be aiming at. That needs spiritual, I believe, that needs spiritual guidance. Especially today, uh, the people who are being brought up in this tech technology with these television, that their mind is full of fantasy. And it's very dangerous for those people to start to practice spiritual life because the demons have access to their minds through their fantasy, which they developed in front of the television. So it's dangerous. So let's look at type 2 closely. Now we'll start. This is the second type of deception which Father Seraphim calls striving for exalted spiritual feelings. This is when a person desires and strives for the enjoyment of holy and divine feelings while the person is still spiritually unsuitable for them. And this is what we're going to concentrate on today. Example, after the last talk, I talked before, a woman came up to me and after she heard talk, the, the talk on 40, which was the beginning of the prayer, on prayer, she said to me that she was, oh, I didn't know. She goes, I always thought that the aim of prayer was to experience joy, peace and good feelings. And now you're telling us that this could be dangerous. She says, I never even knew that. Example two, the energetic judgmental nun, which I got from Elder Leonard's life. Let's look at this one and see how this is to do with type two. Deception. In the life of Elder Leonard of Optina, there is mentioned that there lived in a convent a nun who led a strict ascetic life, ascetical life. She was a very energetic old lady who had great concern for many people and gave instructions to many. But she herself had an ecstatic disposition, inclination. In other words, she was inclined to become excited in the spiritual life, overjoyed in the spiritual life. It wasn't proper. 
she struggled, and I underlined this, and she struggled for high things in spiritual life. She was struggling to reach those high levels without completely rejecting human glory or cleansing herself of other passions. This is, to me, um, says a lot. See, the problem with this woman, with this nun, was that she was struggling to achieve these high things in spiritual life, but she hadn't even learnt to reject human glory. She liked attention. She liked people to glorify her, like we, like, like we do today. These tweeters, these Facebooks, like that Facebook is not, like I, I don't call it Facebook, I call it vainglory book. This is where, <laughs> back in the old days, you know, you had opportunity to be vainglorious, you go to church, you do your cross like a Pharisee, bow down, stand there like a statue, people look at you and go, Oh, well, we think that people are looking at us and go, oh, isn't he good? So we had to, you know, once a week, we had to wait seven days to actually come to church so that we can show off a bit and then to think the priest is looking and they think that my face is shiny and my eyes are glassy, um, you know, because I'm spiritual and I've got tears and things like that. So we had to wait seven days. Now, of course, there's other people, women especially, they, they satisfy their vainglory through their makeup, through their clothes, men through other means, etc., etc. So even during the day, we have opportunities to be vainglorious. But the good thing about Facebook is that you have the opportunity to be vainglorious 24-7. 24-7, you've got your futz, as they say in Greek, your face there on Facebook. And everything that you do, Today I went to David Jones and bought something. <laughs> and I say to my, when people talk about, but who, I don't mean to be rude with the language because it's Australian, so you can understand. Who gives a stuff whether you went to David Jones or not? <laughs> and they say about other things that they do, and this is my friend. And I have all these friends and all linked up and everyone knows each other's life and what the person's doing and what they're wearing and where they went out, who they're going out with, etc., etc. So that to me is vainglory at the highest level. Now, some person heard my talk a few months ago said, oh, you spoke against Facebook, but some priests use Facebook, right, to advertise spiritual things. Well, if they're using it for spiritual reasons, that, that's okay. But when they've got their fatsas there as well and they're um, <laughs> continually talking about themselves and everything that, that they do, well, then it uh, looks like they must have vainglory as well. So this, this is the, the opportunity. As for tweet, I don't even know what it is. The only tweety thing I knew was Tweety Bird from Bugs Bunny. <laughs> what, what tweeter is, I don't even, I haven't really learned. I want someone to one day come and say, can you go on a tweeter thing so I can see what it is? Because I don't know what it is. It's similar, is it? Well, I didn't even. The Facebook I've gone, some people have showed me. Um, they've got some Facebooks account and they've showed me. And it just makes me sick. And the dialogue, you know, I, I saw one account of some people where it was two brothers talking, two young boys talking to each other and go, oh, this, and I don't, go on and on, on. But the thing is that they lived in the same house. So <laughs> they were having a dialogue in the same house. Oh, you're an idiot. Oh, you're stupid. You're this, that. And that was it. Now, um, that is diametrically opposed, as they say in maths, diametrically opposed to spiritual life. 
Now, if there's some good things about it, you know, maybe some church priests use it for some good reason. I don't know, but, but in general, it does not go for spiritual life. So if we are living where we thirst for vain glory, we want to be noticed, we think we're going to be the next Australian idol or the next American idol or we're going to go on these X factors or we're going to go on these Australian Got Talents and all these things or Korea's Got Talent or whatever else that people believe that they're going to go. There's always this thirst. I'm going to be a model. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be, you know, it's continual. Why? Attention. So Justin Bibi there, he actually, he actually put his, you know, his mum put him, put him on, the, the, what do you call it, on the, on the web. And someone discovered him, and now he's famous. So what are people doing now? They're putting on continual clips of the most stupid things. Huh? Well, that... But the people have a thirst to become like him, to become famous like him. And that thing that they always say... It's, the, it's like um, it's become like biblical for them. It's like always aim at your dreams because your dreams can come true. So you've got someone who can barely finish school and their dream is to become a brain surgeon and their dreams are going to come true. Where's the reality there? They go, oh, look at that woman, the old woman that was on British Got Talent. What's her name, the, the one? Susan Boyle, look at her. But people don't understand. She was gifted from young. She, was up, she knew how to sing. If you look at her history. So you've got people who sing like the, the, they, they've got the same noises like when a cat gets run over and they think that they're going to become famous. So this is all delusion and it's actually quite sad. So if we live in a time that we have this thing about vainglory, then... As he says here, how can we progress in spiritual life? This woman that lived in Elder Leonard's time, where there was no Facebooks and all those other things, that they, she actually says she hadn't learned to reject human glory or, or she hadn't cleansed herself of her passions. She strictly judged the weaknesses of people, probably due to the lack of her own humility, so she was judgmental. Although she was constantly warned by the elders, she did not leave off her improper struggles and ecstatic disposition, her inclination to do these high things. Due to this, she fell into the delusion of the enemy and died in a state of insanity. So that's quite frightful. She was aiming too high and she didn't listen to the advice of the elders and she had elders like Elder Lennon and things like that. Father Seraphim writes, The Orthodox Christian is protected against deception by the very knowledge that such deception not only exists, but is everywhere. So for us to protect ourselves from deception, we have to know deception exists. It's everywhere. Listen to the next part. Including within himself or in ourselves. St. Ignatius writes... Quote, we are all in deception. The knowledge of this is the greatest preventative against deception. It is the greatest deception to acknowledge oneself to be free of deception. So whoever says, I've got no deception, is in the worst state of deception. All of us are deceived. 
But what's the secret? As long as we have passions, as long as we have in us ego, pride, as long as we have anger, as long as we have hate and jealousy, all these passions that are in us, as long as those things exist, the demons are there and mixing the passions themselves without the demons' help. It's all mixing us and making us have wrong views and wrong ideas about ourselves. Now, what does that mean? We're going to go insane. Does that mean we're going to commit suicide? No. Because I will... I'll come to that. Because it's, some of you might say, oh, this sounds too hopeless. St Gregory of Sinai warns us, God is not angry at him who, fearing deception, watches over himself with extreme caution. Even if he should not accept something which is sent from God, on the contrary, God praises such a one for his good sense. God loves those who are careful of deception. God loves those that even if they had a true experience and rejected because they're not sure and they're scared, God loves those a lot. So if someone saw a vision, I don't want it. And say it was a real vision, which wouldn't happen to us. But let's just say it was a real vision. Saints saw real visions. Remember the one I read last time when it said, um, when um, uh, an angel appeared to a monk and said, I'm here because of your humility and your great spiritual life. And the monk answered, I think you've made a mistake. You must have been looking for someone else. That's not me. And immediately the devil disappeared, burst like a balloon, because he couldn't tolerate the humility. And listen to that. I'm, he said, I am not worthy. You couldn't have been sent to me. It must be a mistake. I'm not worthy to see visions. And as we say in Greek, eskase, which means that the demon burst because that's the only weapon. Remember St. Anthony when he stood on a mountain once and he looked out and then his eyes, his spiritual eyes were opened and he saw all the deceptions that the demons do to the Christians and the monks. He actually saw all of them. And he let out a sigh and he said to God, how can anyone escape that? There's just so many deceptions. This answers what I said before. How can we escape it? And he heard a voice from heaven saying, only with humility. Only with humility. So if we experience something, you say, Is that, can that be right? I remember someone said to me once, oh, I felt something in me that was strange. And, and he says, um, it was like it was grace, but I wasn't sure. And I go, what's the problem? He goes, because, I don't know. I mean, how can, what is, why would I be getting that? I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, why would I experience that? I don't know anyone else has experienced that, he said. So why am I experiencing it? Maybe it's a deception. See, straight away, God protected him. St. Macarius writes, in the absence of humility, it is dangerous to seek high things. We all lack humility, all of us. And unfortunately, there are a lot of us, even here, who don't even know that we suffer from pride. So that's not a good sign. Where we are proud continually, it's in us, it's ingrained in us, and therefore, because we do have that, we can't handle any gifts 
spiritual gifts. They will become a two-edged sword. What does that mean? You cuts on one end and on one edge and one on the other, meaning that you can have a gift which maybe helps people. So it's like you have the sword and you can cut. Okay, with one end you cut and bread. That's a use. That's useful. But with the other edge, you're cutting yourself because it's, it's double-sided and there's no, there's no handle. So as you're cutting, you're getting some use, you're cutting bread for your family, but at the same time you're cutting yourself. That's the same as spiritual gifts. One, the spiritual gift can be used to help people or whatever, but at the same time you're, you're cutting yourself, you're destroying yourself, and that's why the saints were scared of them. And that can include even personal things like joy and things like that, where we're not actually helping people, but we might say, oh, but I feel, I feel joy, I feel joy in the Lord, as, the, you know, as a lot of Protestants say and all that, and Greek and Orthodox, sorry. And, um, and isn't that what we're aiming at? Isn't that what the prayers say in the prayer book? Grant me joy, grant me this, grant me that. Yes, but if that joy is not real, then it's, then it's dangerous. And if the joy is real... Can that joy become a double-edged sword where you're cutting yourself with it? So in one end, you're experiencing grace, but at the other end, you're actually destroying yourself because you're falling into pride. Father Seraphim writes, one, when one acknowledges his incorrect feelings, both his own and those from the demons, to be true and grace-given, he accepts false concepts and ideas which correspond to the false feelings. And that means that when we have deceptions, when we're saying, okay, I've got that feeling in my heart, that feeling is from God. But it might not be. It might be from the devil. It might be from God. It might not be. But if it's from the devil, if it's wrong, or if it's just from our passions, then because we are accepting this as being from God, we begin to have all false ideas and views about ourselves, about our spiritual state. And this is dangerous. He continues that he says, in this type of deception, type two, the person is satisfied with the invention of counterfeit feelings and states of grace. What's counterfeit? Counterfeit money is money that's not real. It looks real, but it's not real. It's fake. Like people that go and buy diamonds and jewels and things like that, only to find out that they just bought some glass. It's not real. It's fake. It looks real. That's what it means by fake feelings and states of grace. It looks real, it feels real, but it's not real. That is, in this deception, one constantly invents false spiritual states. And there's a major difference between type 1 and type 2. Type 1 meaning the one exalted spiritual states and type 2 the spiritual feelings. What's the main difference? In type 2... The person becomes deceived, falls into frightful error, but he doesn't go into madness. He doesn't, he doesn't become deluded to the extent of type 1 where they see visions and, and all those type of things. However, in, the, in this type 2 state, this spiritual feeling one, this state may continue for many years or a whole lifetime. A person can be deceived like this for years or even all their life where they actually believe that what they feel in is from God when it's not. 
This state may continue for many years or a whole lifetime and may not be detected easily. By who? Detected by themselves, but not only that, maybe even the spiritual father might not even detect it. One who falls into this warm, comfortable, fevered state of deception virtually commits spiritual suicide because he blinds himself to his own true spiritual state. The person becomes blinded to what is really going on in him or her. They cut off God's light. They cut off God's grace. Once a person starts to say, oh, look at me, to themselves even, I feel this, this is from God, this is, this is good, this is because I'm good. Once that happens, we're setting up barricades. And when it doesn't allow God's light to enlighten us or it doesn't allow God's grace to come and, and bring us to the truth. One who thinks he is filled with grace will never receive grace. He who believes that he possesses the gifts of grace fences off from himself the entrance into himself of divine grace, which I just said, and opens wide the door to the infection of sin and the demons. Once a person accepts fake experiences as being from God, then that person stops the grace of God and God's enlightenment to penetrate into their souls and they become infected with sin and the demons. It opens the doors up to the demons. So let's look at these feelings. One, love for God. Father Seraphim writes, the ascetic who strives to cultivate in his heart love for God. Aren't we commanded to love God? You must love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your heart. Now we're going to hear things which are going to make people get a little bit upset. Maybe hopeless. But don't worry, because nothing here is hopelessness, which you'll see in a minute. The ascetic who strives to... Because truth is not hopeless. Humility, whatever gives us humility is not hopeless. Whatever gives us humility is grace-filled. The ascetic who strives to cultivate in his heart love for God while neglecting repentance and instead struggles hard to acquire a feeling of delight, of ecstasy, as a result, acquires precisely the opposite. He enters into communion with Satan and becomes infected with hatred for the Holy Spirit. Saint Ignatius, actually, that's Father Seraphim speaking, but he quotes Saint Ignatius at the end. Saint Ignatius says, he enters into communion with Satan and becomes infected with hatred for the Holy Spirit. Very harsh words. And yet, a lot of people today, those who are for ecumenism, for example, or those who are against ecumenism, some of those zealots, a lot of them suffer with hatred for the Holy Spirit. Why? They suffer from hatred towards the truth. Because ecumenism is wrong, but also extreme zealotism, like the ones who are, who are zealots and say that every Orthodox church is in heresy, every Orthodox church is without grace, that's hatred for the Holy Spirit. They believe that what they're doing is from zeal. They believe they've got love of God. They believe they've got love of the truth. But as we'll go on today, you will see that that's not correct. About Here's an example. About This is written... In this book, which I recommend as well, Return, it's all about confession, repentance. 
It's uh, written by Nachimandrite Nectarius Andonopoulos and it's by Akritas Publications, A-K-R-I-T-A-S. It's a Greek book, but I think they sell it in America as well. Excellent book. But this also, what I'm going to read to you, is found in The Way of the Pilgrim. It's, uh, I'll read it to you now. About five miles from Kiev, there was a priest who led an ascetical life and who was very wise and understanding. He would give a pamphlet to those who went to him for confession. He was a famous confessor. This pamphlet was called A Confession Which Leads the Inward Man to Humility. So when someone would come to him for confession, he would say, OK, here's this little pamphlet, read it before you do confession. People would have their own little confession sheets and he would say to them, show me your confession sheet. He goes, you don't even have the basic things there. Let's have a look. It's excellent. You should read the whole pamphlet which is in there. But I'll read you a part of it. He starts with the topic of love of God. It, and he writes. Well, it, it, it was written in the pamphlet. I don't know whether he wrote it, whether he got it from somewhere else. But anyway, that's not important. He says, it, in the pamphlet it says, I do not love God. Because he said to this man, show me your confession sheet. You haven't written that you don't love God. And the man goes, how can I not love God? For if I love God, I should be continually thinking about him with heartfelt joy. Every thought of God would give me gladness and delight. Instead, I much more often and more, much more eagerly think about earthly things. And thinking about God is labour and dryness. I find no delight in prayer, but even find it an effort. I take pleasure in talking about worldly things, but the study of the law of God, the knowledge of God and of religion make little impression on me and satisfy no hunger of my soul. To put it shortly, if love for God is proven by the keeping of his commandments, remember the quote which says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Christ said. And I not only do not keep them, the commandments, but even make little attempt to do so, then in absolute truth, the conclusion follows that I do not love God. That is what Saint Basil the Great says. He says the following quote, the proof that a man does not love God and his Christ lies in the fact that he does not keep his commandments, end quote. So that's just a little bit that was written. And I read this years ago. Many, many years ago, I did read that book and I remember this particular and I never forgot it. So when people come to me and say, I have love for God, I said, you know, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Let's see what Staritz Siluan of Mount Athos. This book. Wisdom from Mount Athos. Another fantastic book. Now, some of you might say, is every single book fantastic? Are you telling us to buy every single book? Well, you know, if that's what you think, then poor things. But the point, the point is that when I, when I think something's good, I'll say it. And yes, I encourage people to get these books. This book, someone read it the other day, I told them to read it, and they read it and they go, it was like a mirror. I go, what do you mean? He goes, when I read this book, it just showed me how far away I am from God. And I said, so how did you feel? Did you get into despair? He goes, no, it just humbled me. Good, that's good, I said. Anything which gives humility is healthy. Let's see what Staric Sidonor says about love of God. Men's hearts have grown proud, 
and, his, and this is, he died in 1938, so this was probably written in the start of the century, early 1900s. Men's hearts have grown proud and is only through affliction and repentance that we arrive at salvation, which is what we said in the beginning. See what he's, 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 he said the same. Men's, because men's hearts have grown proud, we're not going to arrive through salvation, through the normal spiritual life, the activity, but through repentance and suffering. While as for love, listen to this, while as for love, it is rarely attained. It is rarely attained. But yet we hear Protestants and we hear Orthodox Christians and others go, love the Lord, the Lord, and I love, the, and I love God, and I love God. If we wish to love God, we must observe all that the Lord has commanded us in the Gospels, says Staritz Siluan, who's now been canonised, by the way, saint. I had the good fortune to go to Manathos one day. His skull is there in, at the monastery of St. Padalim, on the Russian monastery. This was years ago, and I was there for a, I think, for his feast day. And I venerated his skull, and I was present at the feast. It was all in Russian. I didn't understand a word. And however, this is what I experienced. Could, maybe it was deception, maybe not. But anyway, I'll tell you what I experienced. And uh, that was the, the most uplifting service that I've ever, ever been to. This saint was... It's good to read his life as well, how he, you know, he fell when he was younger into sin. And then he left and then he went to um, Mount Athos and became a monk. And he was very simple, I think he was uneducated. And yet he, the good thing about it is that he's writing about his experience with the, with the grace of God, that he felt that he had the grace of God. And he tells us how one feels when they have the grace of God, but the real grace of God. And let's see what he says. He says, if we wish to love God, we must observe all that the Lord has commanded us in the gospel. So we say to ourselves, do we follow the gospel? Do we actually do the commandments of Christ properly? No. So therefore, we have lack of love. That's what the other pamphlet said too. I just read a minute ago. The man who fears sin loves God. Do we fear sin? Do we fall into sin easily? I think we all fall into sin easily. The man with a tender heart loves him even more. Meaning a man with a tender heart. What does he mean by that? I've got a feeling he means a man who, a woman, who has a tender heart, a merciful heart, a, um, a heart that is good, does good to people, is merciful, very important. He, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And when we obtain mercy, it means we are given the grace of God. So, um, the man who fears sin loves God. The man with a tender heart loves him more. Note, people who are deceived like this, through this spiritual feeling that they've got love of God in their hearts, and they say that my heart is overjoyed with this, don't speak or want others to speak about, for example, demons, struggles, passions, sufferings. They say, only talk about the Lord. I had a few of them here. They actually came. They were like, they, to me, it was like they were Jehovah Witnesses. So they came here and, they, and when I was talking about demonic things and things like that, they were going, 
are making all faces. You could feel it, and you could actually see them. I could actually see them. And they said to someone else, Oh, why talk about demons? Just talk about the love of Christ and love of God. That's a disease. That's a sickness. That's a whole distortion of orthodox spirituality. Which saints do we read that never spoke about passions, that never spoke about the fallen nature, that never spoke about suffering, that never spoke about demons? Which saints did that? What are these people trying to bring us? Heretics. Because that's a heresy. So we go on. Now some of you might say, oh, is that love? Is that love? Yeah, that's love. Because I don't want them to infect others. If someone had a disease and I brought them in here and said, you come and sit here so that Zora can get sick and this person gets sick and that person gets sick, is that love? No, it means I'm stupid. So it's the same thing. When people have got diseases, you, you can be careful they don't infect others. And also some people are far gone. This is why am I, why am I against because they read the Gospels. They read Christ himself speaking about it. They read lives of saints. So how dare they say oh, that we shouldn't speak about those things and just love of Christ. Is it a, so is it a coincidence that worldly people, in other words, unspiritual people, think exactly the same way? They don't talk about Christ, but they talk about love. Love and joy and good things, etc. So in other words, these people are on the same level as carnal people. Carnal meaning unspiritual people that don't think in a spiritual way. See, and what's a carnal thought? A carnal thought is, oh, that person had a, good, had a swift death. They didn't suffer. That's a carnal way of thinking because the spiritual way of thinking is if that person's suffering, God is allowing him to be cleansed of his sins to be ready for the next life. See, that's a spiritual way of thinking. So there's carnal way of thinking and there's a spiritual way of thinking. People think that carnal means sexual. Carnal means the opposite to spiritual. And today in the church we have bishops and priests, etc., that speak in their sermons continually about love and to love Christ and to love God, but nothing else. Read books, read fathers, read things which speak the truth. Spiritual peace and consolation. How do we know if the peace that we feel is from God or not? I have an example. Some people that I know went to Greece to some monasteries for a visit and they went to a monastery. And the abbess there was saying to them, you must have love of Christ. You must be inflamed with the love of Christ. She was saying, agapi Christu. Floga means flame. Prepi, you have to have floga Christu. She got flame. And these people were becoming a bit disturbed and said, I don't know, because they said to me, but you don't speak like that. You don't tell us we have to have love of God now. You said that you've got to develop it with time. This person says you have to have it now. What's, what's going on? Well, we'll come back to that those people later on maybe they've got an incorrect way of thinking or maybe they're correct and, I'm, and I could be wrong but let's see so I've got an example here about peace just like when people take drugs 
legal or illegal, they can acquire calmness and even peace. So we know that certain drugs can do that. Marijuana, um, Xanax. You get peace straight away with you when you take some of those things. And hence the hippies, when they would often say, remember back in the old days, peace man, the whole life was peaceful because they were constantly out of it. In a similar way, the evil spirits can give peace and calmness. In the same way, so we go. So we know that drugs can give this peace. Certain drugs, some of them make you crazy. Certain ones can make you like that, whether legal or illegal. Xanax, Serapax, what what have they got now? All these, what, what, what's what's that family called? Babidrinol. Yeah, those Bazapines ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, we have those drugs that can give us peace, but we also that the demons can also give peace. They can give calmness to the deceived. That is, those who are receptive to demonic influence. Who are those? Those who feel that they are worthy of spiritual gifts. Those who don't lead a life of repentance. Those who do not practice the commandments. Those who do not repent, etc. and struggle. Those people who believe that they've got worth in themselves are open to these type of deceptions. Like I said before, St. Macarius of Optin, right, but what a, by the way, that thing about the drugs and the hippies and the calmness, and the, that's mine. I wrote that. Why am I saying that? Because... I don't expect you to believe me, but let's go on to what St. Macarius of Optina writes. The enemy knows how to ambush and deceive a proud person by false consolation. I love that. A proud person by false consolation. What's false consolation mean? That the person believes that God has given them grace and they're being consoled, that they just feel really nice because God is consoling them. You know, like when someone's upset... Someone's died or something bad's happened and someone goes up and consoles them and they calm down. Well, that's the same in the spiritual life. That sometimes God, when someone is, is, is all over the place by passions or sins or whatever, they can feel consoled. They go, oh, I feel God has consoled me. I feel better. I feel calmer. As he, now we're going back to Elder Macarius, as he appears in the form of an angel of light, just like the devil can appear as an angel of light, then I say like the ones in type 1 deception, so too in noetic activity, in the spiritual within ourselves, and the activity of the soul, the devil produces his own movements from which may the Lord deliver you. So here... He's saying that the devil can give us false consolation. So the devil can give us this false peace and consolation. Illegal drugs can do it. Legal drugs can do it. And alcohol as well to some extent. Now, here's an example. I tried to find it. I asked so many people to look for it. We couldn't find it. I have to do it from memory. Someone went to Mount Athos quite a few years ago and they noticed that there was a monk there who the other monks were teasing, making fun of him, abusing him, you know, splashing water on him and all that type of stuff. Um, And this monk who was visiting, I think it might have been one of the elders of Optina or some spiritual child of one of the elders of Optina, he noticed it and and he said to himself, 
I cannot believe the peace of that man. How does he take that? How does he not get angry? How is he so peaceful? How is he so humble? How is he so meek to take that? Because we know that if someone does that to us, if someone splashes our face, we throw a bucket back, right? The water and the bucket. So, in this monk was amazed at this person. So later on, he saw him and he said, Oh, Father, you know, I want to ask you something. How are you able to keep your peace when all those monks are making fun of you and you know, doing all those bad things and putting you down and things like that? How do you do it? He goes, it's easy. I look at them as dogs. I look at them as dogs. What is that telling us? In other words, his whole inner self had nothing to do with spirituality. He was able to keep peace while 100% considering those who were making fun of him that as dogs. In other words, that they were nothing. They were pieces of rubbish in his eyes. And he goes, and with that conviction, I remain peaceful because to me they're nothing. Now that is fearful. Today... I've had enough experience with people because a lot of people are not mentally well. We're, all, we're really we're all mentally ill, but some are really quite bad. And there are people who are emotionally not well. And let me come to that. Let me just read a bit more and then I'll come to that. Staric Silonos continues, Everyone who renounces his own will before God and other people will always be at peace with his soul. But the man who likes to have his own way will never know peace. All the great saints endured every affliction, submit themselves to the will of God. What does that mean? For those who want more explanation. The saints always submitted themselves to the will of God, whatever happened to them. They got sick, they said God's will be done. They were persecuted, God's will be done. They were put in jail, God's will be done. They were... Tormented by demons, God's will be done. Not tormented by people, whatever, God's will be done. Because they had that, they were peaceful. The, peop- the person who's not peaceful is the person who wants his own will. And who's that? All of us. Me, all of us. We all want our will. It's very hard for us to submit. It's got to be my way or... No way. A person who constantly wants his will or her will to be fulfilled is never at peace. So there's an, there's an example. Do we feel peace? Do we have peace? How do we know it's real? Well, we know it's real by checking ourselves and saying, am I a person who submits to God's will? Or does everything that happened to me bothers me? There's an extreme case of some people who, I remember in Melbourne there was a person who had demonic problems. I don't know where he got it from, he just had demonic problems. And when he would go into fits of demonic rage, he just would become incredibly angry against God because he couldn't accept it. And he would go into such a rage that he would break icons, smash them. He would get onto the floor and he would, with his four 
and it's a Greek expression where he would actually do a type of hand gestures to God saying, I'm against you, I hate you, I'm because of you allowing these things to happen to me. That's an extreme case. But in a way, that's how we are. We become angry. Why did that happen? Why did I smash the car? Why is my child sick? Why did my husband say that to me? Why did my wife not listen? Why this? Why that? Everything. Why did I lose my job? Why is there a financial crisis? Why is there a war? Why is there this? Why is there that? All the time complaining, complaining, and we can't, it's very hard for us to submit to God's will. What does that mean? It means we cannot have peace if we cannot submit to God's will. Even if a man prays and fasts a lot, but does not have love for his enemies, now we go to the next one, he can have no peace of soul. The soul that is sinful and falls into the passions cannot know peace and rejoice in the Lord. So we go to the next level now. One was we don't have love of, um, we don't accept God's will. But the next one is, do we love our enemies? And he says, in who experienced the Holy Spirit said, if we can't love our enemies, we cannot have peace of soul. Full stop. So we have to think about ourselves and say, do I love my enemies? I remember reading in a book that it's, uh, one saint said that when you have experienced the true experience, I think it's coming up, maybe I, I took it out, when you're having the grace which visits you, then everyone seems like saints. You love even your enemies. This is an indication that God's grace has visited the person. He's, and I think I read somewhere else, it says, when you, have, when you believe that that is happening, imagine in your mind the face of those who you can't stand and see how you feel. Do you feel good about them? Or as soon as you see their face or think about them, you begin to get agitated. Can you pray for them? Can you purely pray for their soul and say, God, give them all the best? This is where this is. But when we aren't in that state, we think about what people have done to us and we remember wrongs and remember wrongs and remember wrongs, remember wrongs. Now, if some of you here can put up your hand and say that you don't have remembrance of wrongs, if you can say to me that you don't have dislike, even hate at times for those who have done harm or have said stuff about us, ignored us or talk, made fun of us. If any of you are here that have that, can you please tell me so I can come and kiss your hand as a saint? Anyone? No one. That's it. That's how it is. And the saints struggled with that as well. Some, I read a book, one of the Optinate elders, and it said there, I think one of the Optinate elders said, he was writing to another elder and he said, I'm full of I'm full of passion, I'm full of pride, I'm full of disobedience. I can't remember exactly what he wrote there. And there's a little footnote down the bottom, running to the rest and go, not that the saint had that, but he was like out of humor. What stupidity is that? Like what, what kind of a demonic footnote was that? What kind of a stupidity is that to actually say, oh no, not that the saint felt that. The years the saints could develop, develop, develop. Yes, when they get to a state where they don't, where the passions don't act anymore. But a person can still be a saint and have passions acting because they're struggling and they're repenting and things like that. So there's all different levels. So when we read, for example, Saint Isaac the Syrian, the prayer that we read during Lent, "A Lord and Master of my life, a spirit of idleness, curiosity, ambition, 
give me not. Say to friend the Syrian, sorry. And the last one says, Yeah, Lord, grant me to see my own faults and not to condemn my brother for blessed at the age of ages. That's Saint Ephraim writing that. Now someone will put a little footnote underneath the prayer. Not that he's writing about himself, that he condemned anyone. He's only writing for the Christians who are, who've got that problem. No, he was writing about himself. And grant me not to condemn my brother. See, this is heresy. This is distortion. This is demonic. I've read Lives of Saints beautifully written there where they say, where the saint says, I had such dislike for that person and how they struggled with it to, to overcome it. But they were con in, in monasteries, if you speak to a monk, they're constantly bombarded with dislike for that brother and that brother and that brother and that person, that person, that person, and thoughts and things like that. You know, that brother ignored me. That brother was rude to me. That's not including the, the thoughts against the abbot and the squats against the spiritual father. It sort of just goes on and on and on. Peace is lost if we show off or exalt ourselves above our brethren. In other words, when we show off, when we constantly want to show, how can we have spiritual peace? How can the grace dwell in us to the, that? Only when we humble ourselves does grace dwell in us. Only when we humble ourselves do we have that. And that happens very rare. We have to be humbled. Maybe when we've been knocked down, when we've been smashed by some temptation that God has allowed, and maybe then we can say, I'm, I'm really bad, and then we can maybe experience something. But it's done in a way where the person doesn't even realise it, so as not to fall into pride. Peace is lost if we show off, exalt ourselves above our brethren. If we find fault, if we enlighten with gentleness and love, without gentleness and love. In other words, when we try and correct someone and we correct them without gentleness and without love, then we lose our peace. If we too, and that's happened to me, if I correct someone, if I correct someone in a harsh way, I lose my peace. If I correct someone in a better way, then I can have something, but that's it. When we've got passions and anger gets in the way and all these passions happen, and that's why we rarely have peace. If we eat too much or are lazy in our prayers, all these things cause us to lose peace. Just as Father John of Kronstadt says, we call him Father John because at the time that he wrote this, Father John of Kronstadt had been canonised. Now he's, of course, St John, but let's just say what he said. Just as Father St John of Kronstadt preserved his peace of soul by praying for mankind without ceasing, so too do we lose our peace because we do not love mankind. Now we go to another level. The first one is when we accept God's will. The second one is when we love our enemies. The third one was when we, have, when we don't have pride, vainglory. Now we go to another one. We have peace, true peace, when we love mankind without ceasing. So do we lose our peace because we do not love mankind? The holy apostles and all the saints desired the salvation of the world. And living among men, they prayed fervently for them. The Holy Spirit gave them strength to love mankind. So what Starit Silouan is saying is that when he had the grace of God, he, which he asked for as well to have love for all mankind, he experienced that during when the grace of God would visit him, he would have love 
for all of mankind. That means everyone, heretics, Buddhists, Jews, whatever. He had love for all mankind that they all come to the truth. And this is a characteristic of someone who has spiritual peace, that they love all of mankind. That's what monks, when monks are full of grace, the Holy Spirit of its own teaches them to love all of mankind. The Holy Spirit teaches them and helps them to pray for everyone. A priest who serves, really his function is to pray for all of mankind. Some people, some priests say, um, I'm not, what's the point in doing the liturgy? Not, I mean, only two or three people come. So that's a mistake. We don't do liturgy just for people who are going to come. The liturgy is a service where we're praying for all of mankind. At the time when a priest is serving, whether he's got one person or not, it is where he's praying for all the dead that have died from the beginning to now, and he's praying for all mankind. He's pr- and that's it. So that is wrong to actually believe, oh, we're doing the liturgy for those people that are present. I don't, I don't believe that. Anyway. So peace in our souls is not possible if we do not beg the Lord with all our hearts to give us love for all men. The Lord knew that if we did not love our enemies, we should not have peace of soul. And so he gave us the commandment, love your enemies. That's why Christ said it. Love your enemies. If you love your enemies, you will have my grace. You don't love your enemies, you will not get grace. It's impossible to have grace if we do not love our enemies. If we do not love our enemies, we shall only now and then be at ease. Well, I just said that if you don't love your enemies, then you have never be at ease. Now he's saying, am I wrong, to, am I wrong when he says that we do feel at ease sometimes? When is this sometimes? How can we feel at ease if we don't love our enemies? It's when we sometimes let go and don't have dislike of our enemies. Very rare. Sometimes we just say, oh, I have to let go of this hate. I have to let go of these constant remembrance of wrongs. Let go and then we feel some peace. But as soon as it comes up again, we feel terrorised, ripped apart, etc. I always say, blessed are those who feel hate for their enemies. And now some of you will say, what is he saying? Heresy. This, he must be, this, this is heretical. He must be saying something wrong. Why am I saying blessed are those who feel? Because I've met people who were so much at peace that you, know, they, you see them and they're so peaceful. They're in the spiritual life, maybe a year or so, and they've got this peace in their faces. And you ask them, do you have any problems? He goes, nothing. Do you have anything? Like, do you think about people, what they've done to you? He goes, nothing. Do you have any sexual thoughts? Nothing. Do you have this? Nothing. And I say, you poor thing. You are really, un- you are really deluded. But when someone comes up to me and says, Father, I can't understand. I've got such hate. Why? When I was at work the other day, this person, they were using the photocopier, and then they just rudely said to me, your, it's your turn, something like that, something stupid. And I, go, and I just have been ripped apart ever since. I've got these visions that I want to go and say this and this to the person, etc., etc. If I could put their head in the photocopier and close the thing. I'm so upset. 
And I said, well, that's good. At least you noticed that how much lack of love you have. So why are you upset? Because they were rude. So okay. But the saints took so much, didn't they? They go, yes. So what does that show from you? I'm not a saint. Blessed are those who know. See what I'm saying? Blessed are now. And then you teach them how to get over it. Then you say to them, okay, now, this is what you do. You have to pray for that person. You have to pray to God. Acknowledge that you're full of hate. Acknowledge that you're full of revenge. Acknowledge that you've got this problem. And pray for God to help you for it to go away. That I can work with. But this other person that came and goes, you know, it was just peaceful. It's like he was floating. floating. Well, it was, it was. It was floating in the air. <laughs> anyway, and he said to me, can I confess to you? I said, oh, really? I said, you want to confess to me? This is before I used to do confession. I said, okay. It's going to be a bit difficult, but because I have a different approach. He goes, no, I want to confess to you. <laughs> that peace. So I thought to myself, maybe he was using his mother's Sarah, uh, Xanax. I don't know what was going on, but this, was, this peace was just too much for me. So anyway, I said to him, okay, well, let's start. So after a while... I um, helped him to see what was in him and what was hidden in that person. What was hidden in that person, I'll just tell you what his nickname was at the end, what his friends used to call him. This was his nickname, hate. They used to say, oh, here comes hate. Hate. And why? Because he had so much hate in him. He didn't even know. It wasn't peaceful after that. When he saw these passions in him, his face was very dark. He was, like, he was like he was constantly under torment, constantly had thoughts. People would say to me, someone's going, it's like his hair standing up. What's wrong? I said to the person, it's better for people to know you've got the problem. And that way you become embarrassed, ridiculed, and then later on you come to realise it. Because people are in their own little worlds, it's not as, it's not as strong but when people begin to know, except for sexual things we don't say, but when people begin to know what your passions are, it's actually good. And that's why some elder said, I read it, I can't remember, it was a few months ago, one elder said, it's good for you to admit your faults to people. It's good. It helps you come to humility. So no, he wasn't taking drugs. He wasn't on any legal or illegal drugs. He was just high on himself. The devil did not bother him because he had him in deception. But after, he realised what, what was in him. So, love your enemies. If we do not love our enemies, we shall only now and then be at ease, as it were, in our souls. But if we love our enemies, peace will dwell in our souls day and night. Back to that monastery that I was speaking about. A person went to that monastery that I spoke about before where they said love of God, love of Christ, you have to have love of Christ. And a, per a person went there for a visit. This person, she had peace as well. Very peaceful, very calm, etc., etc. Anyway, the nuns there said, Ooh, this is a holy girl, this is a holy woman. She's really, really good. She's monastic material. She can become a nun for sure. Then they found out that the big priest, the big bad priest from Sydney had told her she should get married and then all of a sudden these nuns were going he's against monasticism he's, he's against the fathers 
he's wrong. How is he telling this woman to become a married person when she is holy? That's what they were saying. Yap, 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 you know how they go. And I said, and I, and I thought to myself, what is wrong with these women, um, this particular monastery? All against me and this and that. Anyway, the poor deluded nuns didn't know because their spiritual life was not in the correct way. They were into these uh, wrong books, which I'm going to talk about later. They were reading the wrong books and things like that. And their whole spiritual thing was like, you've got to get the virtue now. There's no struggle. No, there's nothing like You've got to have love of God now. So they looked at this woman and thought that she was holy. But they didn't know that this person was a very, very ill person. This person... Um, even though she looked spiritual, even though she was incredibly quiet, she had a lot of problems. And one of them was that she had a friend, she had a friend, who was worldly. So she had a friend that was worldly. And she would, she wished from young, before she came to the church, she always wished that she was worldly, but she was shy. By nature, she was very shy, reserved. So she had this friend, and this friend was outgoing and would speak to people and would, you know, be, you know, really social. And this supposed person that should become a monastic used to tell this person what to do, what to say, how to act, and it was like she was her manager. It was like she was her manager. And she would tell her how to speak to guys and how to go here and how to go there. Now. And she goes, that's how I want to be. But because I can't be that, at least I can tell my friend how to be like that. So isn't that, that's not, see, but they didn't know that. They were saying, oh, she's holy, she's holy. And to end the story, her friend didn't exist. Her friend was in her imagination. Okay, so these nuns didn't even have the knowledge to actually understand that all because someone is quiet, it doesn't mean that they're virtuous. A lot of times people are quiet because they've gone through some abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. They might be mentally ill to some degree, etc., etc. Those people cannot become monastics, nor did that person ever want to become a monastic. Now, whether she got married or not, I don't know, but the point is that she was ill. And that's where people get confused and say, oh, look, they're quiet. They're, they look peaceful. No, there's a lot of reasons for that. This type of deception, striving for exalted religious feelings, is rarely detected by others. This state of deception is quite often mistaken for true spirituality and even holiness by those who are ignorant of orthodox Authentic, orthodox spirituality. Some deception is so subtle that a spiritual father can even be tricked. The secret is in the person's self-awareness, self-condemnation, repentance of sins and fear of not being saved. A characteristic of these people is they cannot be corrected, told their faults. There is an absence of true humility. True spiritual life in a person can be seen that as they supposedly are progressing, they are increasing in humility. 
the awareness of their sins, they're more aware of their sins, they are more repentant, while deception increases a person's pride, spiritual darkness, unrepentance, stubbornness, etc. That's the difference. Good spiritual fathers, experienced spiritual fathers, look at the person not on the outside. Not if they've got quietness, not if they've got this, not if they're not falling into sins or whatever. They look at what's inside and see, is this person aware of themselves? Does this person have pain of heart? Does this person have repentance? They're scared they're not going to be saved? Then that's okay. Now, of course, some people can make that up. But, you know, when you test them, it, it comes out. When you tell them their fault, they just, it's like you rip them apart. Self-confidence and boldness. St Ignatius writes about the third thing now, that a certain self-confidence and boldness are usually noticeable in people who are in self-deception. So a person who is deceived also has this self-confidence and a boldness that they're sure of themselves, what they believe. In people who are self, in self-deception, suppose that they are wholly or spiritually progressing. An extraordinary arrogance, self-importance, appears in those afflicted with this deception type too. They are, as it were, intoxicated with themselves, drunk with themselves, by their state of self-deception, seeing it a state of grace. They believe what they've got is from grace, and they are drunk with themselves. They just love themselves. They think that they're good. They think they're worthy. They think that everything. They are immersed in and overflowing with high-mindedness and pride, while appearing humble to many who judge by appearances without being able to judge by spiritual fruits. Now, sweet joy in prayer, sweetness, when people, we know that the saints feel this sweetness that even comes up into their mouth and they taste it. Staritz Macarius of Optina writes, while he's talking to a person, he writes a letter to someone, he goes, while sadly pondering the evil of your life and longing for reconciliation with all whom you have injured and all who were hostile towards you, you suddenly felt a stream of sweet joy flow into your heart. So this person was thinking one day, he was thinking about all those that harmed him and he wanted to reconcile with them. So that's good, isn't it? So he had a good thought. He, he felt that um, those who he injured or those who injured him, those who he went against and those who were against him. He wanted to reconcile with all of them. Inexperienced as you are, you assume this also to be true and not a deception. Soon you were so entangled by this temptation that you came to the very edge of madness, where he believed that this joy that he had was from God. I think God, in his great mercy, prevented you from completely losing your mind, only because you were deceived, not willfully, but from lack of experience. That's the hope. When we are all deceived. But when we are deceived from inexperience, from ignorance, God does not allow us to fall into great big disasters because it's from ignorance. It's not, it's not willfully. It's not, it's not that we know that what we're doing is wrong. And God still protects us. St. John of the Ladder 
says, drive away with humility all streams of joy as being unworthy of it. Now, I underline streams. What does that mean? When we're flooded, not when we might feel here and there and we're still not even sure, but these people that we're talking about, they have streams of joy, like the charismatics, those who speak with tongues. They go, I've got the joy of the Holy Spirit. And they've just, they say that it's pouring into them and out of them and things like that. As, and, and as being unworthy of it. St. John says, reject that. Don't accept that. Say to yourself, you're not worthy of such a thing. Just in case by accepting it, you receive a wolf instead of a shepherd. You receive, in other words, the devil instead of God. St. Macarius writes, the apostle says, the apostle says, that real spiritual joy is one of the rarest fruits of the Spirit to be attained only near the peak of perfection. That is, after all evil habits and thoughts are overcome, all passions conquered and reconciliation with God is reached. That's when we can then trust that our, this abundance of joy is from God. And plus all the other things that I said before. Do we love our neighbours and our vainglory and hate and things like that? Hence, in your actual condition, you cannot possibly assume that any streams of joy that flow into you or immerse you, no matter how sweet, come from heaven or that you are already partly living there. He says, read St. John of the Ladder, step 15. So St. John, St. Macarius of Optinus, tell him, no. In the Western churches, this is really, you know, you all know, I don't know if you've heard it, in the Western churches, especially Protestants, they sing, I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart, etc. They're always talking about joy and joy. They don't talk about sins. They don't talk about passions. They don't talk about pride. They don't talk about any of those things. It's just joy, the Lord and love and love Christ and things like that. And does that mean we should not have joy? Is that what it means? But we read in the prayer books, that it says, and grant me joy, and St. John of Cronston says, you know, you are filled with joy, and things like that here and there. What, it, what I answer to that is, no, but joy without repentance is absolutely deception. deception. If we don't have repentance, if we don't feel sorry for our sins, then for sure that's 100% from the devil. The Orthodox Church teaches that joy should be connected with mourning. Mourning means Sorrow for our sins. And it's called joyful mourning. Hamolipi, I think it's in Greek, means joy at the same time as mourning, meaning that sorrow, sorrow for our sins. As beginners as we all are, even then it's a bit dangerous to know exactly. That's why we check. Never trust, just, just in case. I mean, if you feel it here and there, okay. But don't say, I've got joy, and then get proud about it. If it comes, it comes. It doesn't, it doesn't. But if we don't have repentance, if we're not really doing the commandments of Christ, you can reject. Now we come, now we come to The Imitation of Christ. This is a book written by a Roman Catholic, uh, Thomas A. Kempis, Imitation of Christ. It's a Roman Catholic book. And Father Seraphim says, the Roman Catholic Church has whole spiritual manuals written by people in this state of exalted spiritual feelings. They're into it. Remember what I said to you, Francis of Assisi? He was in deception. He believed that his experiences were from God. 
and the Franciscan monks who follow his teaching and lead a spiritual life according to his instructions. Those, those Franciscan monks, you know, the ones that wear the brown things, they wear the knots and things like that. They are, some of you who know history of, the, of Serbia, those Franciscans in Croatia during the, during the period there of the Second World War, they, you know, they combined themselves with this Ustashi, which were like a political group. And these Franciscans, from the grace that they had, that they acquired, which they believe, or should we say the hatred that they had for the Holy Spirit, they were involved in the mass conversion of thousands and thousands of Orthodox Serbians and in the execution and torture of thousands and thousands. Around 800,000 Orthodox Serbians were tortured and killed during that period and those Franciscan monks with their three knots were the main instigators of that. Hence what Father Seraphim says, quoting from St Ignatius, those who lead incorrect spiritual life, those who believe that the experiences that they are having is from God become haters of the Holy Spirit. Now that's them. But in the Orthodox Church, there are those who in heresy, those who are doing damage in the church today, are also haters of the Holy Spirit from their deception. They hate the truth and they even hate the Holy Fathers. Some of them say, oh, the Holy Fathers, they're backward. We don't worry about them. Love. We have to love everyone. We have to join with everyone. Those people are haters of the Holy Spirit. Father Seraphim says, or probably quoting St. Ignatius, sorry, he says, there prevails in this book, The Imitation of Christ, and breathes from its pages the influence of the evil spirit, flattering the reader, praising the reader, intoxicating him, making him drunk with his pride. Because why? Because the book conducts the reader directly to communion with God. What I said before, like that's it. You are here, by reading this book, you will become with God, in communion with God. No struggles, no repentance. From it, carnal people enter into a state of intense joy and spiritual drunkenness. That is, a state of rapture, ecstasy, a kind of hypnosis in a way, which they attained without difficulty. Here we have the saints that struggled for 50, 60 years, some of them, 70 years, to attain some a measure of peace and the grace of the Holy Spirit, like Starry Silouan that struggled for years in Mount Athos, etc. And Elder Joseph, look at the struggles that he went through, the fasting, the struggles, the temptation with the demons, etc. But by reading this book, you bypass all that. You don't have to lead an ascetical life. You don't worry about fasting. Don't worry about prostrations. Don't worry about all those things that are written in the Orthodox books. Bang, you go straight to this uh, communion with God and you feel joy, which is similar to when people read those um, New Age books. When they read books of Baha'u'llah or whatever, all those, um, what do you call those, guru books and other books that they, all those gurus there, and all those people, the same thing. So whether you read those books or whether you smoke a bong, you get the same effect. You get immediate joy 
And that's the same as this book. This book is dangerous. And uh, St. Ignatius says that, it's, that they reach this supposed level of intense spiritual joy. They become drunk with themselves without difficulty, without self-denial, means without spiritual struggle, without repentance, and quote in St. Paul, without crucifixion of the flesh with its passions and desires. And what does St. Paul mean by that? He means we need to struggle in order to uproot the passions, struggle with thoughts and desires like pride and vainglory, hate, revenge, jealousy, greed, gluttony, love. What happens to all those things? So in other words, the person's got that. They read this book and they become holy. And as for those passions that are in us, we don't worry about them. Like the person that I said that came to me. One would think he was holy, but he wasn't. Or that poor young woman, but she wasn't. In her and in him and in me and in you and in all of us are passions. They have to be uprooted for us to become spiritual if we're going to get anything. And if we can't uproot them, obviously, then we have what's called humility and asking God for continual mercy. No. I think that, that um, monastery in Greece, the one, I think they used to Ah, yes, thank you for reminding me. That, that monastery that I spoke about before, the ones that were waving their hands and saying, well, I'm against monastery, they actually said that after the Bible, the imitation of Christ is the best book. And that's why I went against so much today I'm speaking about. That's why they're deceived. See what, see what they said to these women that went over there? They go... Agape Christu, you have to have agape, love of Christ. Now, like we got it when we read the imitation of Christ is what they're saying. And to show you how much they become haters of the Holy Spirit, even though they're orthodox nuns, what did, what, what did they do? They were, they were famous for their icon painting. They paint icons. And they allowed two young women who were Uniates, Roman Catholics, Uniates. Uniates are Catholics who are, resemble Orthodox in every single way. They dress the same, they do the same liturgy, they have the same icon or whatever, but they commemorate the Pope. In other words, they're Catholic. They even have married priests. You know, the Catholics say, we don't allow married priests. Well, they're liars because in that branch of Catholicism, in the, these units, which are mostly in Ukraine and some of those areas up there, they actually have married priests exactly like Orthodox. You can't even tell them apart. The only way you can understand it is when they commemorate the Pope. So they're unit. So what did this monastery that reads this imitation of Christ and said that I'm against monasticism and everything else that they were going crazy about, they actually allowed these girls to come. They taught them icon painting. They taught them Orthodox iconography. And then those young women went back to wherever they came from, maybe the Ukraine, I think, where they came from, became union nuns and then were painting orthodox icons. So that when so, usually, you know, when you walk into their churches, I should say, apart from the commercial, the Pope, sometimes you can tell from their icons they just don't have it because they don't, have the, they don't know. They don't have that. The, they don't know how to do it. They might, they might have certain things, but these union nuns, now union nuns that, were lear that, would, that learned from them, they actually went there and were painting pretty much excellent orthodox icons so they can trick the people even more. That was the result of um, their imitation of Christ. So, 
Here, this comes from Metropolitan Eurotheos' book, A Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain. And here, an elder up in the, up in the desert spoke to this person and said to him, how do we warm up our hearts? How do we feel grace in our hearts? We warm up our heart with the remembrance of our sins, with self-condemnation, with the feeling that we are the worst of all, the lowest of all creation. Only when we live prayer in this way can we receive spiritual joy. In other words, only then can we receive the grace of Christ. So see that? That's different to what I was saying before. What did he say? To have real spiritual joy, to some extent, we need to have remembrance of our sins, we have to condemn ourselves and feel that we are the worst of all, then there could be some possibility. And it doesn't say warm up ourselves with feelings of joy, but remembrance of sins, self-condemnation, repentance, humility, and fear of God and fear of not being saved. That is the condition for someone to maybe experience spiritual joy, but maybe there can be some glimpses of spiritual joy if one has that repentance. One thing can be certain, there can be, this is, I'm, I'm writing this, there can be no experience of spiritual joy, there can be no spiritual progress, there can be no communion with God, there can be no acquiring of grace when there is an absence of repentance and humility. If those things don't exist, forget it. In other words, if we do not have the remembrance of our sins, self-condemnation, pain of heart and repentance, any experience of joy most certainly is deception. So look at ourselves. Can, do we repent of our sins? Do we, feel, do we feel pain of heart? Do we feel it? No. A little bit, maybe not much at all. Then reject all, all feelings of joy as being deception. And the last one is tears in prayer. Another problem. St. Theophan the Recluse writes, when tears come of themselves, not when we force them, people that are de deceived, they actually turn on these joys, peace, tears, etc. They actually turn them off and on. And that is not, that, that doesn't come because God gives us his grace when he feels like it, not when we say, I want it now. That's another sign that's a deception. If you can turn on, like I taught in girls' schools, I know. Girls can turn on the tears off and on and so easily. They're very good at it. Some guys have got that. But, um, but girls can do it. They can cry. It can look real. Crocodiles can cry as well, as you know. Also, another way you can turn on the tears, if you want to look spiritual, cut some onions. When you cut onions, you'll be flowing with this. Does that mean you've got repentance? Does that mean it's from grace? How about those people that do those movies? I always wonder, how do they get them to do, how do they get the tears? The way they're just filming in that angle where it's just running down there. How do they do all that? Maybe they rub onions in their eyes. I don't know how they do it, but does that mean that, they're, what, that they've got grace? Because tears is an indication of grace. So let's have a look. When tears come of themselves when, and warmth of heart, stop and wait till they pass. You must not think that you have received something great. It comes naturally from concentration. This is what Saint Theophan the Recluse is writing to someone. Now, however, it is not an illusion either. I want to say this to, to this too, just in case, although it happens seldom and to few people, tears stream down, people all look like saints 
Enemies do not exist. Warmth invades the whole body, not warmth of blood, but special warmth of grace. Now, someone might say, okay, see, Father St. Theophan is saying the tears is from God. Firstly, St. Theophan the Recluse is writing specifically to a person who he had under his guidance and he knew. You see what he says? It comes from concentration. He knew that this person was spiritually struggling over a period of time. He also said to him that this rarely happens. To, it only happens to few people. And also, to know that you've got that is stream, trees stream down, people all look like saints, like I said before. Enemies do not exist. Warmth invades the whole body. Elder Porphyrios writes, Tears, however, are not always the signs of compunction. They're not always a sign of repentance. They can often be a sign of womanly weakness. Like I said before, women are more open to uh, these tears. Now, does that mean I'm sexist? Well, that doesn't really interest me if you think that or not. But the point is, that's what the saint says. Saint John of the Latter writes on the topic of tears. Many fathers of the, ch of the church say that the question of tears, especially in the case of beginners, is unclear and hard to determine. See what, see what he says? For beginners. Who are beginners? All of us. It's hard to know. Is it from God? Is it not? As tears are born in different ways, they come for different reasons, like I said before. Let's see what he says. Tears can come from nature. The eyes just water. It can be just from nature. From God. It can come from suffering. It can come from vainglory. You know, people are so overwhelmed. Maybe they're overwhelmed that they had a lot of hits on their Facebook and they have tears. That doesn't mean that it's from God. Like, I can't believe... Like, I've gone, my Facebook page has gone viral and they've got tears of pride. See, that doesn't mean from vainglory, from sexual immorality, people can have tears from that, from love, from the remembrance of death and from many other causes. And, this, and what St. John is saying, how do you know? How do you know whether the tears you've got is from God or not? Well, St. Theophan at least gave us some indication. Do not trust your fountains of tears, says St. John, before your soul has been perfectly purified. And what he says here is not tears that come sometimes, whatever, and even them we should be careful of. It's saying when fountains, like the saints had, when they would cry continue, like we read in the lives of saints that they had a hanky and they used to, they, was, they were saturated from all the tears that they would have. That's a gift. Do not um, When we see anger and pride in those who seem to be mourning, in a way pleasing to God, then tears are to be regarded as repulsive to God. So in other words, if someone's got these gifts of tears where they've got a lot of tears, but at the same time they're getting angry, they've got the passions in them, then that's not from God, it's repulsive. For what communion has light with darkness? Does that mean that if we've got anger that we can't ever experience tears? No, if we're repenting, etc., as I said, it can, but to have it continually... To, to be visited by this a lot, or when you can turn it off and on, that's not right. And the last one, which will be quite shocking, if we watch carefully, we shall find a bitter joke played on us by the demons. This is St John writing. For when we are full, after we've eaten a lot, they stir us up to compunction. In other words, they give us tears. When we are full, after we've stuffed ourselves, then suddenly tears come. And when we are fasting, 
They harden our heart so, so in other words, when we have fasting, we have no tears and we feel a hard heart, but when we've eaten a lot, we feel tears and we supposedly feel repentant. And he says here, why do they do that? Being deceived by false tears, we may give up ourselves to indulgence, which is the mother of passions. We must not listen to them, but rather do the opposite. In other words, he's saying, um, he wants us to think, well, see, what's the point in fasting? I can repent, I can get tears when, I'm, when I also eat, when I can eat a lot and don't worry about fasting. Now, someone might say, this is just too, ma- too much. I mean, how do- it's just so many, so many deceptions. How are we to know? And I said to you, how do we know is we base our spiritual life on repentance and doing the commandments of Christ. Just concentrate on that. That's what we should concentrate on. Doing the basic commandments of Christ and concentrating on repentance. The first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays, the first gift that God gives to someone who's progressing, one can say, to somewhat spiritually, is what? The awareness of his sinfulness. As soon as a person starts to really feel his sins, has pain for his sins, then that person, we can say, has been given a gift from God. But that's the first gift. But these other people, what's their first gift? Tears, joy, peace, consolation, boldness, all these other things. But that's not, what the, that's not what God gives us. God gives us the first thing to give us is to be aware of our sins. And today, unfortunately, in the Orthodox Church, people don't feel their sins. They run in, run in after philokalias and other things. Forget about those things. All you do is pray to God, God, give me an, a, a feeling for my sins. Because just that can save us. So where's the, where is it hopeless? If, if just that can save us, then why don't we strive for that? God's not going to ask us, did you have high prayers? Did you fast without water for 10 days? Did you do these things? He's not going to ask any of that. All he's going to ask us is, did you have repentance? Did you condemn yourself? Did you try to follow my commandments? That's it. So there's no hopelessness. Repenting for our sins and the awareness of our sinfulness are essential in the development of true prayer. Moreover, awareness of our sinfulness and of our nothingness and hope in the mercy of Christ are characteristic of orthodoxy and all our services of the church. The services, that's all, it's all, it's all about our acknowledging our sins and asking God to have mercy on us. And St. Ignatius says, the mind can see its sins when the grace of God touches it. So when someone can't see their sins... That means they've got no grace. Darkened by the fall, the mind of itself is incapable of seeing them. And then I underline this next part. Seeing our sins and our sinfulness is a gift of God, which is what the other father said. So I'm saying here, so if we can't see our sins, it means that we do not have the grace of God. This means we have vainglory and pride. God cannot dwell in a vainglorious and proud person. And St Ignatius further writes, and I'm finishing... Those who have acquired a true spiritual understanding of repentance, including all their labours such as prayer and fasting. The purpose of fasting is to come to repentance. The purpose of prostrations is to come to repentance. The purpose of all our spiritual life is to come to repentance. That's the purpose. Not to experience feelings and joys and tears and all these other gifts or visions and things like that. That's not the purpose of what, what it is. Those things were given by God to those who were worthy of it for whatever reasons he knows. That's not for us. 
The greatest of the Holy Fathers acknowledged that repentance was their sole occupation. That's what they were um, mostly interested in. That's what they were, that, that, that was their aim. Someone asked a question. I think it was John, is it? And I will end up with this story to answer your question. In a book, but the Elder Leonard book, on one occasion, Elder Leonard visited a monastery where there was a Hierosclima monk, Theodosios, who was living a life of seclusion nearby. He was a recluse. Many people considered him to be a spiritual man and clairvoyant because he had foretold the war of 1812 when Napoleon invaded Russia. He foresaw that. And he made other predictions which came true. Elder Leonard found his state dubious. That means he was a bit suspicious, like, mm, this doesn't, this, there might be something wrong here. Because the, the elders didn't like those type of things, these obvious gifts, etc. During a conversation with the recluse, Elder Leonard asked him how was he able to foretell the future. The recluse replied that the Holy Spirit made the future known to him. Elder Leonard asked him, how did he do this? How did the Holy Spirit make this known? The recluse explained that the Holy Spirit appeared to him in the form of some type of dove and spoke to him in a human voice. Elder Leonard clearly understood that the recluse was deluded by the enemy. Elder Leonard began to warn the recluse that one should not believe this kind of thing, which is what I say continually in these talks. That's where I get it from. Don't believe these things. So this person believed that this dove that he saw was the Holy Spirit speaking to him and telling him about these prophecies. But... The but the recluse was offended and angrily answered the elder. Now these words are very fearful. The recluse said to the elder, to Elder Leonard, I thought that you, like the others, wanted to derive profit from me, but you came to teach me. See that? Like the ones in the Pharisees with the blind man. You were born blind, you were born in your sins and you've come to teach us. Remember that one? Elder Leonard left him, and when he was leaving the monastery, Elder Leonard said to the abbot, watch out for your holy recluse. Don't let anything happen to him. Watch out for him. What, is, what, what do you mean by that? While he was on his journey, Elder Leonard later, re, uh, when he was leaving the monastery, and later on he, he, was, he found out that the recluse, the, the recluse, Father Theodosius, had hanged himself. From this one can conclude that although this recluse was deluded by the enemy and he was in great delusion, I mean, we don't see doves speaking to us, I hope. So we're not at that level. This person was really deluded. And he should have known better because he was a monk. He was a, he was a schema monk, great schema. And he also, I think he was a schema monk, higher schema monk, yeah. And he should have known because he read it in books anyway. He should have known. But... Listen to the explanation. From this one conclude that although the recluse was deluded by the enemy, the mercy of God did not abandon him. But when he rejected the well-intended warning of a wise and experienced elder, 
the Lord abandoned him and he perished by a wretched death. I end with that. Why? Because the truth of the matter is all of us have all these deceptions in us because we don't know. It's because we've got the passions, they're in us, we're tricked continually, we're not experienced and that. But God does not leave us completely. He doesn't let us fall into these things like to these people that the one that died insane and this one that committed suicide. Why? Because it's in ignorance. It comes from inexperience. Is God that cruel that because there's no spiritual fathers or not many ones to, to guide us to actually know? Look at this monastery. Didn't even know that that poor woman was deluded. So is God gonna? Is God that cruel? Is that how we look at Him and say He's? You know, it's all like like He's out to get us, or he's, we're gonna fall, we're gonna lose our souls? No, that that's what Saint Ignatius trying to say. We are all deluded, and to a large extent, God, God does not leave us because it's in ignorance. However, when we're told the truth, when we ourselves realize the truth, and we reject it then it does no longer is ignorance, but it, became, it becomes uh, intentional. And where it's, when it's intentional, that's blasphemy. That means that the person is not allowing, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're not allowing the Holy Spirit to come in them to help them to repent and come to the truth. So we lead our lives and we always feel, oh, I'm probably deluded here and deluded here, whatever. You do your life, you go to the spiritual father, whatever you've got, and you open up yourself and say, Father, I feel this, I've got this, I've got that. And even if he doesn't know, that's the secret. Say he doesn't know. Say he's not experienced and he doesn't know that there's a subtle deception there. But God sees your humility. And when he sees your humility, he will give you more grace to see the delusion or to protect you. Because it is in ignorance. But when we say, I'm not going to go to um, any spiritual father, why should I go? They're all, I've heard people say, oh, they're all deluded, they're all this, I don't want to go to anyone, this and that. I remember once this Serbian fellow, I said, why don't you go to a Serbian, because he didn't speak English much, why don't you go to a, uh, a spiritual father? And the, he kept on saying, uh, I can't, what was the word? Is it a, Nema, Nima, how do you say it? No, there, there is none. Nema, ne Nema, he kept on saying. Nema. I thought at one stage he done a recording or something. Nema, continually. There is none. He was in complete delusion. Because to him he goes, there is none. But God has spiritual fathers always, you know, and 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 doesn't matter even if they are, to some extent, some of them could not be, maybe they're not experiencing these these things. I'm not, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I can pick up some things, but it's a bit hard for me to detect delusion in others if I've got my own delusions in my own inner self. So what we do is we go to the spiritual father and we say, I've got this, I feel this, sometimes I get tears there, is that, what do you think of that? I've got this feeling in my heart, I feel this in the chest, I do, you know, and you say all these things. And just that action, just the fact that you're not trusting yourself, just the fact that you're opening up to the spiritual father, God sees that 
and gives you abundance of grace. And there's no way anything can happen to us. So the answer where some of you might have been thinking, oh, this is hopeless, this priest gives us hopeless. Oh, how do we know if the tears are deception? How do we know if that's deception? No, we don't. We don't know. A lot of times we don't know. But humility is as Staritz Siliwanos said, which I didn't have time to read. He um, beautifully says, But the Lord helps and supports the man who is humble. And if there be no experienced guide, and he turns to the confessor he finds, the Lord will watch over him for his humility. That's the end of the talk. It was a long one, wasn't it? Did you get tired, Andrew? Imagine me on my feet all that time. Okay, just one or two questions and we'll end. What's your name? Yes. Oleg? Okay, good. Um, do you have any questions? Maybe you've got a question like, am I deluded? Do you have that question? And I answer... Yes, to a large extent, but I try to... That's why I use the fathers. And when I say my own opinion, I tell you it's my opinion, so you can reject it. And plus, I always try to go to the fathers. Now, if, am I interpreting the fathers correctly? That's for people to, to work out. Um, the main thing is you take what you want and you reject what you want. But if I spoke from myself, then I would come with delusions but I'm trying to speak what the fathers say, the link. And not the ancient fathers, I will pick the modern fathers, the ones that lived in more in our times. They're the ones, like Father Seraphim Rose, St Ignatius, they're the ones that put things into context for us. Even though that wasn't your question, but... Uh, you, you used the word of course from Holy Fathers. I could see that, and that's pretty... Um, you were happy with that? Uh, I'm happy, and useful information for myself. It's mm -hmm. good. I'm happy I'm happy to hear that you were benefited. Yes. How as Orthodox Christians can we avoid falling into depression if we're always focused on what we haven't done right and our sin is always before us? Does Christianity really cause guilt and depression? In this talk I spoke uh, for quite a few hours about three hours, on that very thing about uh, hopelessness. And hopelessness comes from pride. The fathers say that when someone falls into sins or sees themselves in a bad state, like you're saying, and, and they fall into despair, it's a sign that they're proud. And that's not a healthy spirit. If you read the orthodox services of the church, especially the Orthodox, where we have the fathers that wrote the church, that wrote them, talk about, and, and, and you know, Sunday of Judgment, which was in June Lent, it talks about there, it says, you know, I deserve to go to hell and I'm full of sins and this and that, but, oh Lord, have mercy on me and save me because you're kind and loving. What happens is what you're missing there is that you're, you're I won't say you, in general, people miss, they've never tasted God's mercy and forgiveness, whereby... A person can be falling into so many sins and yet not have hopelessness 
but have a trust in God's mercy. And hence what the Jesus prayer is about. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy in me, sinner. That's where it comes from. It comes from a person who sees their sins, who's constantly falling, but does not fall into despair and continues on trusting in God's mercy. And those people who do that, uh, God gives them actually quite, quite, quite a few gifts, but secretly so as not to let them fall into pride. So to actually say that there's hopelessness, I don't know how many... I, I, sorry, I don't, know, I, I don't know you, so I don't know how long you've been in the church, I don't know your exact background, but the question's good for those who are beginners. Remember that I have actually uh, I have done um, 41 talks before this and I have actually built up to this level. So if someone's coming for the first time to this particular talk, it might be a bit heavy. But in general, there is no despair where there's humility. If a person understands their state, if a person has an ounce of humility, then they will not be left without God's grace. There's no hopelessness. I read in Staritz Macarius something which I wanted to, you know, this is going to be the theme of my next talk. Uh, whoever wants to come after this many hours been here. When someone forces himself only toward prayer while he does not exert or force himself with regard to humility of wisdom, love, gentleness and all other independent virtues, the result is much as follows. Sometimes in response God gives a little bit of grace because he's good, kind, but when the person doesn't respond to that grace and the person hasn't had a habit of training himself in the practice of other virtues but just praise, then the person falls into self-conceit. The Holy Spirit rests in a person who has humility. If our sins that you're saying lead us to humility, then we have everything. The problem here is what you're saying is good, is that people have not experienced God's mercy. He who has been forgiven much loves much. If a person has never experienced God's forgiveness, people go to confession, but very rare people to experience God's forgiveness. People pray at home. And when, and as St John of Cronston says, you should be confessing continually to God your everyday sins. And then when a person falls and falls and falls, but continually sees that God's granting them forgiveness, then that person who's forgiven much loves much. And the person begins to experience that God is not this harsh person who's out to get us, who's out to trick us and make us to fall and things like that, that God is love and merciful. But we have not, a lot of us haven't experienced that because we haven't entered the spiritual life in the correct way. So um, our sins, as the Holy Fathers say, can be a means for us to attain humility. Our depression, if it's a physiological depression, medical, can be a means of acquiring humility. Wars, sicknesses, everything that happens to us, the often to say, can be a way of obtaining humility. Once we have humility, 
then we have everything. Even if we don't have virtues, and even and even Starrett, that wasn't the quote, I lost it. Starrett Makari said, even if you fall, even if the devil has such a hold of you and you continually fall into sins, he says, don't despair. Just get up, go to your icon corner and pray, continue your spiritual life. And by doing that, you actually will experience God's forgiveness and you'll say, I can't believe how loving God is that he actually forgives me even though I'm sinning continually. That's the purpose of these talks, to get people to the stage of experiencing that. So your question is actually, your comment is good. And I can only say that hardly anyone has actually experienced that. And that's, the, that's, that's a shame because without that, we haven't entered into the spiritual life. And um, Andrew. Um, yeah, you mentioned during the um, talk about um, someone suffering when they're dying as a sort of spiritual gift um, for them, uh, for their salvation. Now, if, if someone, say, doesn't suffer when they die, does that mean... No, because... Or, or does, um, the, does... If someone... How do you differentiate, say, between someone suffering and it's not for their salvation or someone suffering for that? St. Athanasius of Manathos... He was, in, he was in, from Manathos. He was from the monastery of, of Megistilavra, whatever, I can't say anything. Anyway, he was inspecting the church and the church, the wall fell on him, he died instantly. So what does that mean? He didn't, he didn't suffer, he just died instantly. But of course, his whole life was a continual repentance, you see? So when someone dies instantly but has not had an opportunity to repent, then that's a bit of a disaster. But of course, we don't know what was in the mind of the person that day. Maybe they had thoughts of repentance. We don't know. That's why we still commemorate them. But in general, that's why we're continually, constantly praying and repenting and always being in that state so that whether we suffer and die or whether we uh, die abruptly, we still can be saved. To your other question of whether, how do we know whether suffering is for good? Like, for example, mentally, pe mentally deserved people, people that are possessed, they're suffering. They don't even know that they're suffering because they're out of it. They're actually suffering here, which means in the next life there's less suffering. You know, people that are possessed that are just suffering continually, continually, continually. So every suffering, if you remember talk number two on the truth of death and dying, where I actually read there where the fathers say, that even in the war, where a lot of soldiers were, were killed and left on the field and eaten by animals, and they had, they had what's called a really... Uh, their bodies were one? Violent deaths, or they were just left there. That, that disregard, that suffering, and that type of um, disdain for their body, as we say, actually cleanses them of sins. So all suffering, it's God's mercy... And whether the person believes or not, I'm not saying they're going to be saved. I don't know. That's not my business. But all suffering has the purpose of alleviating our sufferings in the next life. So that's that. And one more question. You were going to say something about uh, frustration and uh, delusions. Unfortunately, that was a big chunk that I left out because I saw that I was... Yeah, I saw that I was actually um, running out of time, so I actually had a good section on that. It's basically the warming of the blood and the mind stimulates and the... Anyway, we'll do it another time, maybe the next talk. And just one, you so you had... A, yeah. Just about the books, you said um, we should be careful with what we 
books we read. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, can you read all the books from the uh, contemporary elders um, that are available? Like, um, Look, contemporary elders, the, I, the reason I like them, even though some of them are a bit deep on some parts, as long as you're aware of it, but they've got all these advice, like all those little stories I read, they all come from that. So you read them. Oh, look what he said to that novice. Why are you reading the Philokalia? Pop, pop, pop across the face. Well, then if he's saying that to a novice in a monastery 150 years ago, how much more for us that live now? See, things like that. Or that was lumpy, wasn't it? There was another story about someone else and the one who hanged himself. All these stories. I, I, I like them because, especially that series of the contemporary authors, they actually give good advice and they also got a lot of advice of lay people that came to them asking advice about their marriages. Like this one here, Staritz Makarius, Russian Letters of Direction. He writes to monks, but he also writes to lay people. Like That's where I got the thing about the person that was stopped eating meat and he was doing the Jesus prayer and he was on deception and he had the joys and all. All that came from here. He was a lay person. And I read this years ago, I never forgot it. It just, it just, it hit me and I say, well, you know, and I always became careful, okay. So what's the point if you're not gonna eat meat, if at the end of the day you're gonna get proud about it? So you're gonna lose it, just, just be ordinary. Whatever we do extraordinary is like it gives us opportunity to get proud, just be ordinary. Uh, yes, is that it? Okay, well, uh, that's it, it. And, um, Sorry about the lateness, but so I. It's worth it. Thank you for those um, words. Um, I hope everyone thinks the same. But I need to look. It's tiring. I understand and things like that. Uh, but um, we only can do this once every f month or two because it's just a bit difficult for me. As and I think for you, it's good to go away, think about it. Now, some of you may become disparaged, but you know, really, if you're gonna become disparaged after this talk, then I would have to say that there's something spiritually wrong. So don't go away and say, oh, that priest and what he said, and it's all there. Now, personally, I cannot see where the despair is. If I'm telling you that you can be the worst of them all, and as long as we have our repentance and ask God, and God will save us, well, what else, what's disparish about that? I didn't even say to anyone today that, oh, they're going to go to hell. You know, some people say, oh, you're going to go to hell, this is going to, you know, like the, these fine brimstone talks. Didn't even mention that. And for those that are interested in that, even though I did touch on it, that talk 31 was, a, was I read from the fathers there, no, guilt Judas had. Judas had guilt that he sinned against Christ and his guilt led him to hang himself. While St. Peter denied Christ as well. But he did not hang himself because he went to God and asked for forgiveness. He obtained mercy. See the difference? Let us not be like Judas where we sin and we bitter and we say, Oh, God can't forgive me or how can I fall into this? But let us be like Peter and say, I sinned, forgive me God. And that's it. And keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. Up and down. What's the father say? You fall, get up. You fall, get up. You fall, get up. And then someone said, but until when? He goes, so that at least when your death comes, God finds you upright. And what does upright mean? Upright means to have trust in God's mercy, to have trust in God's love, 
to have trust in God's compassion. doesn't matter what sins, doesn't matter how sinful we are, we continually say, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.